Cunningham for another extraordinary message on Gill Athletics Connections. Well, welcome to the show. Uh. It's the goes to appreciate the coach, the ones who point people most. Every season needs a voice of reason, speaking the growth. You gotta prep for you carry the load. It's coffee to the soul for those of us who stay on the go. Proper handoff to stay in the zone. What you packing for the road? There's more than one way to the go. Take notes, that's paying your toll. It ain't practice if your purpose ain't clear. It can't happen till you listen with both ears. You can't mentor without a mentor's years of experience. You can reinvent those years. Every plan's got a stand to deliver up to. Enterprise sacrifice, can you give up you? It's a choice and a fight. Not a win or lose It's not a ploy but advice so y'all can make more moves It's not about how to, it's all about why You don't know till you know who you are inside Six million ways to tie Choose none so we all cross the finish line The work ain't done So we learn from the experts We all gotta put in the legwork Gill Athletics is a network It's all about connections Put together for the profession To every track coach could be the blessing All right, welcome back here to the Gill Athletics Track and Field Connections podcast. Hey, happy new year. Uh, when you are listening to this, it is 2023. It's it's hard for a guy who graduated high school in 94 to think about we're in 2023. And just as fun as an exciting as a happy new year's, this is our new season. We are blessed that you continue to listen to us and allow us to do season Four, four, we're going to our fourth full year here of interviews of uplifting and honoring coaches around the country. So thank you so much for, for being here and listening. It, this podcast literally doesn't happen if we don't have listeners. It also doesn't happen if we don't have guest, an amazing guest. And uh, I've got a good one for you to kick off season four. Last year, season three, we kicked off with a personal mentor of mine in coaching in Boo Schecksneider. Well, how about this? I went out and got his mentor. So help me welcome from the PATH Sports Consultancy, the wise, the wonderful Mr. Dan PATH. Dan, how are you today, sir? Yeah, doing good. Uh, happy to be here and uh, anxious to see where this goes. Oh, okay, that makes two of us. Good. <laughs> Uh, Dan, it is uh, really a privilege to have you here. You are maybe one of the more prolific coaches out there when it comes to coaching education, uh, writing, blogs, videos, books. Uh, it's it's quite amazing the amount of information you're able to put out in today's world right now that we have YouTube and Zooms and all that kind of stuff. It's uh, it's quite amazing. So there are lots of opportunities for coaches out there to learn kind of your coaching style and philosophy. What do you believe in to help a pole vaulter get better, a long jumper get better? And you certainly have done that with many, many athletes. We're going to take a little pivot today instead of talking about X's and O's, because there's lots of places right now, go to altus. Uh, I don't know if it's altus.com or altus.eu, just Google it. Uh, you'll find many, many things. I know Stuart McMillan, the CEO of Altus, uh, does an amazing weekly newsletter that Dan is the head writer of for lots and lots of blog posts. You, you, it's a must. You must be subscribed to those. So go do that. Today, we're going to kind of learn what made Dan Dan. How did he get to be today's coaching guru? I know he loves for me to call him that, <laughs> but how did he get to where he is today? What people poured into him? What experiences did he have to get to where he is today in 2023? So Dan, to kick us off here, you know, 
as a former athlete myself, that's that's hard to describe when you see so many great athletes out there today. But yes, I, I did do track a little bit. But at some point in my life, I realized that track and coaching wasn't just something that happened to me. You know, coach would bark out orders. I'd say, yes, sir, and, and go do it. At one time, and I can still remember it pretty distinctly, a light switch kind of flipped. And I realized, oh, wait a minute. I, I could be a coach like that. That's an actual profession. People do this and get paid. Where does coaching start for you? Well, <clears throat> probably a product of my environment. Uh, I grew up in southwestern Ohio uh, near the, uh, the city called Dayton. Hmm. Uh, <clears throat> father uh, ran a construction company and we were farmers and uh, his his people were in Wisconsin, and they were all dairy farmers. So I was back and forth. Uh, but I think growing up, the son of a construction foreman and, and a farmer uh, really helped me become what I call a generalist. You know, you got to wear a lot of hats in both of those uh, entities. So <clears throat> grew up very rural uh, in the 60s, and that was a period where you did whatever sport was in season. So I played football and basketball and ba uh, baseball and track and field and ice hockey on the ponds and factory league ice hockey and uh, you, you name it. Now, <clears throat> we lived in a really remote area. So, that, you know, if we got together, there might be four or five guys tops. So we had to invent variations of the sport. So like two on two basketball where a third guy rotated in or uh, four on three ice hockey on the golf course ponds, or, you know, we had decathlons, you know, we, we built high jump standards post in the ground and pole vaulted into car pits and through shot puts and what have you. And, you know, three on three flag football kind of stuff before flag football is around. So <clears throat> I was always kind of an organizer and a leader and trying to figure out the essentials and the ABCs of the sport. So it probably started, you know, when I was an adolescent and probably got more intense, you know, as I got into what we call middle school now or high school. How did that lead to, you know, today we know you more specifically as a track coach, but the, us, us that know maybe one layer down, we know you've worked with many, many, many other sports. How did track become the sport? If it even did, how did it you know morph into like you were a track coach who branched out or how did that even come about? Yeah, good question. <clears throat> well, I played football back in the suspension helmet days. I had a lot of concussions and it was pretty uh, authoritarian, top down military punishment. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we did hours of punishment training and well, I just, it really bothered me that, you know, I was paying the price for somebody else's mistake. Uh, basketball, I was a point guard. I could pass like crazy and dribble and play defense. So I couldn't shoot worth a darn. Uh, baseball, I was okay in Little League. But then uh, when I got to class E ball, and then there was a curveball and I couldn't hit the curveball. So that was out. Uh, they, we didn't have soccer back then. I was kind of a short mesomorph power, good agility guy. Uh, so ice hockey was there, but it was cost prohibitive and it's hard to find access to stuff. So track was kind of the default because it was simple. It was easy. You didn't have to have a lot of money to do it. 
And luckily, my uh, high school track coach, we didn't have middle school sport because back then the barn levies failed and all of that. So my first experience with organized sport outside of Little League Baseball was in high school. And my track coach was a guidance counselor, and he was pretty, uh, what I would call altruistic, uh, kind of a Maslow guy. And, uh, you know, I was really intrigued by how he ran practices and treated people and whatnot. And so that kind of got me thinking that of all the sports out there, and I love sport, and I love all sports still today, it just felt better. What Do you remember his name? Yeah, Ken Carpenter. Ken Carpenter. So what, what did Ken do that was kind of different from some of the other sport coaches that you had? Well, like, <clears throat> I kind of fell in love with pole vaulting. And, you know, he came over and he says, you know, I've worked with a few pole vaulters, but I really don't know it. But, you know, if you go into the library, here's, here's a few books that talk about it that have nice photo sequences. And here's some coaching journals because he knew I was a reader and I spent a lot of time in the library. So that started me on my journey of uh, how people train and using what we call canograms. Now, back then, they had photo sequences like in Scholastic Coach and Athletic Journal. And then Fred Wilt's uh, track technique, you know, they had how you train sections, you know, like how someone trains in the fall and the winter and the spring and then in season. <clears throat> so Ken started me on this research journey on how people train and you know what are the essentials of the event you know that's interesting you know in today's world uh, um, someone can be called out pretty quickly if they say i know everything about how to coach x y and z right i mean there's so many resources back in this era the only resource you had was the library <laughs> you know there was no or any vhs tapes uh of things like that and there was probably i'd imagine there was little to no formal coaching education at that point as well so ken in this little town of southwest ohio easily could have said hey dan i know everything about how to coach ball just list shut up listen and let's go but instead there was this humility of like hey man yeah i've worked with a couple but if you, you, you want to get better, you might want to help yourself go to the library, check out these books and, you know, start, start the journey that way. That's, that's interesting, that humility. Yeah. He, he was what I, we call now a nudge coach. So he'd come over during practice and say, look, you, you look pretty tired. Maybe move your run up a little bit. You're not quite getting there or, <clears throat> you know, we'd warm up for practice and he'd go, and reminder, we got pretty big headwinds today. So you may want to grip down. So he knew a little bit about the event, but he, you know, he didn't stand there every day and overcoach or whatnot, primarily because he was the only coach and he had to coach all the events. So that was probably another gift to see how he managed, how he rotated through the week, you know, like early practice with the long jumpers and the hurdlers, then late practice time, you know, the middle distance guys. So um, it got me thinking about how to organize practice when you got big numbers. Well, I love that you kind of started as a pole vaulter. It reminds me of, uh, we had Harry Mara on the podcast way back season one, I think now. And he mentioned being at the boys club, uh, boy scouts meeting, and they just tied a rope between two trees and got a stick. And he goes, and I just fell in love. So, you know, there's something special about a vaulter specifically when they get started into track and field. How far did you take vaulting? Well, I started out in the steel pole days, so the Swedish steel poles, they didn't bend, it was heavy as hell, I only <laughs> gripped about halfway on it because it was probably a 15-foot pole, 
And, and we landed in sawdust that mm. first year. And then we got smart and kind of raided a junkyard and tore out car seats from buses and mm. trucks and stole a batting cage net from a rival school and kind of made our own pole vault pit. <laughs> Back then, the standards didn't move. They were really post on the ground. So <clears throat> there wasn't a lot of strategy there other than lower your grip or raise your grip because you couldn't move the standards. Um <laughs> It was an asphalt runway. Um, the runway I had on our farm was grass runway. And then we had plywood at takeoff because the takeoff would get dug out. So we just kept moving plywood sheets in to mm. keep from jumping out of a deep hole. <laughs> uh, so I jumped all the way through high school. I, I think my best was like three meters, 80, something like that, 12 something. Mm -hmm. And tried to vault in university. I actually went to Rose Holman uh, to do track and field as an engineering institute. In I was going to say, what an engineering school. Is that right? Yeah. And figured it out real quick. I didn't have the math, math background to do it. So migrated back to Dayton and then went to the state school there, Wright State University, and really had no idea what I was doing. I just, other than trying to avoid the Vietnam War with the student deferment. That's so funny. I, I went to an engineering school my first year and same thing, math. I was like, oh yeah, no, this, I can't do this at all. And then went to Troy University to, I, I studied public relations. I went real easy after the, the engineering fail for me. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, the school I grew up in, we had algebra one and two and geometry and trig. So I was okay there, mm -hmm. but I'd never had calculus. And the first day of engineering math, the guy goes, this is a review of calculus one and two. And I'm like, a review, like I've never even had this stuff. <laughs> like I need a preview, not a review. Yeah. <laughs> well, as you matriculate through Wright State, what is your mindset for a career? Are you going in to be a coach? Are you going to do something else? What are you thinking as an undergrad there? Well, I was, you know, obviously, you know, Wright State didn't have a track team and there were no track clubs or whatever. So I was trying to bald as an independent, you know, first year in university and, you know, trying to find a meet. I was driving to Eastern Michigan for an indoor meet and South Side of Chicago for an indoor meet. And then, you know, in the spring, you couldn't find meets. You know, in the summer, you could find some all comers and find us. It's like this not working real well. And, um, the high school I was at, they were drastically understaffed. And so I, I spent a lot of time there just because I like sport. And uh, my AD there, Bob Fink, was a huge mentor. He let me work all kinds of realms, you know, from equipment to purchasing to uh, turf care, you name it, while I was going through high school. And I spent a lot of time in his office. And, you know, he said, well, why don't you volunteer with the football staff? And then they said, why don't you volunteer with the track staff or you know, why don't you volunteer with the wrestling group? So I started volunteering. Back then, they didn't have GAs or internships or whatever. It was just called volunteer. And so I started uh, coaching there. And I think the second year, we were we had an offensive line coach who didn't have a lot of experience. I played O-line, so I kind of became the de facto O-line coach. And just things kind of cycled from there. What, what what did you actually end up getting your undergrad in? I, I if, if you had to make me bet, I would have said biomechanics, but I kind of don't feel maybe that what was that was it? What it well, what biomechanics you... really wasn't a thing back then. If it was, I would have been all over it. Right. Uh, I had an aptitude for science, uh, probably because of growing up on the farm and there's a lot of science and farming and then right. construction, there's a lot of engineering and science. Right. So I had math, science aptitudes. So 
I just kept taking a lot of science courses. I ended up with minors in about every science, like physics, chemistry. I'd, to be honest, I was dodging the Vietnam War. So as long as I stayed above a 2.0 and I had a full schedule. Yeah. And so it was real biased by sciences. And then my last year, uh, a counselor that had to sign off on my, um, you know, course work. He goes, what are you doing? And I was like, what do you mean? What am I doing? He goes, well, you've been here almost four years and I don't see a degree here. And I was, he goes, are you dodging the war? And I was like, yeah. And he goes, okay. Um, there's a shortage of science teachers and male science teachers. And if you dive into this special program uh, for science teachers, we can get you a certification and that'll probably serve as a, you know, a good excuse to stay out of the war. And I was like, okay, I'm all in. So that last year, I just really dove into all kinds of educational curriculum and courses and ended up with a comprehensive science certificate so I could teach any science and, and math. We're going to dive into this later on, but I'm noticing a theme of non-specialization, of generalization, and, and it would be very hard for someone to pigeonhole you as a sprints coach or a jumps coach. Uh, and we've ha actually had this topic. Uh, I think Boo and I talked about it. Certainly Brooks Johnson and I talked about it uh, back in season one about being a track coach, not necessarily being a sprints coach or distance coach. Uh, but I'm kind of noticing that theme, even through your formal education there at Wright State, you're like, yeah, I just took a lot of different sciences and maths. And uh, eventually it pigeonholed me, I shouldn't say pigeonholed, uh, drove me into a science degree so that you could teach. That's interesting. Yeah, and two of my favorite classes, one was in journalism and the other was in applied psychology. And so I kind of went off on those routes yeah. too. Huh, that's interesting. Uh, it's, it's funny how that played into your career. Obviously, psychology plays into it as a coach. And now today, you're doing a lot of journalistic stuff with the yeah. uh, blogs and, and what have you. That's, that's interesting. Well, I, I tell coaches all the time, build a big toolbox and build layers because you never know when you're going to be called upon to use a tool. I like that. Yeah, I just I am a tool. So I just figure I've, I'll get used somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so did you go into teaching high school science? Yeah, so my first job was at a small school southwest of Dayton called Carlisle. Uh, ironically, it was in the same league that I grew up in, huh. so I knew a lot of the things. And so I was uh, like offensive line coach and eventually offensive coordinator, uh, track coach with no assistant, uh, intramural director, uh, de facto ATC. They didn't have trainers back then, but because I knew science, you know, I ended up taping ankles and you know, taking the Kramer uh, trainers courses that they had in the yeah. summer. And then uh, we started a weightlifting program because I coached throwers. They assumed, you know, I knew weightlifting and whatnot. So I was the summer weightlifting guy and conditioning guy. So again, wearing a lot of hats. So at this point is your career, you're like, what are you going to do? And you'd be a high school teacher. That's what you're going to do. High school teacher and coach at this point. Well, luckily the Vietnam War was coming to an end, so I was kind of open-minded there. And I was, but to be honest, I had a lot of fun, and, and we had some great staffs, and I grew tremendously as a coach, you know, in those three years at Carlisle. And uh, you know, I, I, I never really, you know, people always ask like, when did you know you were a coach? And I'm like, it's probably in my fifties, because I always kept the door open. I was hmm. always looking for you know, something that, you know, would ignite the passion greater than the passion I had for coaching. But uh, 
whether it's fate or luck, you know, like nothing intervened. You know, I know you very much as a teacher today, uh, you know, a teacher of coaches. At this point, are you teaching and helping other coaches while you're at Carlisle at this point? Or are you still kind of in absorb and learning mode as far as what the what does it look like to coach offensive linemen? What's it look like to coach throwers, weight room coach, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, some of it, you know, it was kind of not really a top down uh, mentorship kind of Mm -hmm. environment so you know as a summer conditioning guy they assigned another coach he had no clue and so I was kind of like showing him what I knew and what I thought and why the programming was x and then I got up finally got the school board to approve an assistant in track and field so you know kind of getting that guy up to speed but I was always a believer in uh, team leadership so I was constantly taking the seniors and developing them as leaders and knowing about the sport and the intricacies and the layer of the sport. So I think I was doing a lot of me- uh, mentorship with what I call senior leadership on the mm-hmm. teams, you know, the juniors and seniors that, you know, cause like in track, I think I had like 40 athletes out and there's no way I could be everywhere at once. Mm-hmm. And so I'd put the senior leader of the sprint hurdle group in charge of the warm up, and you know the senior leader in the throws group in charge of the weight room, and so I was probably already kind of doing mentorship in, in a hybrid way, if you will. And, and you're you're still pretty young at this point. Where did that thought process come from? Because you know a lot of us, I'll just use me as an example. When I was a young coach you know, I, I was like the guy put it all on my shoulders. I'll do it all. So I would have tried to warm up and watch every workout of the sprints hurdles, everything with the throwers, instead of uh, delegating and creating leaders, I actually would have been a, a cap on leadership. I would have said it all comes through me or not at all. How at such a young age, were you able to start learning delegation and leadership teaching learning? You, you may not have officially called it that, but that's what you were doing. You were uplifting leaders at that point. Well, again, it circles back to the environmental discussion. When you work in construction or you work on a farm, you delegate and you delegate fast and you develop a, a network of experts. So if if we were having trouble with the crop, you know, I would, you know, talk to three or four surrounding farmers and like, what are you guys doing? Do you have this problem or whatnot? So building a, a network of expertise just came naturally. It was the same thing in construction, like my uh, we had a lot of polish bricklayers in my dad's company so if if there was a masonry problem i went to the lead bricklayer and i was like i don't know what's going on here or what what do you think or so on and so forth mm-hmm. so i think that kind of came intuitively just through environmental development that's fascinating um not to jump ahead here but using your perspective you know today i would say any athlete would be lucky to have you to coach them as you look back to how you coached those throwers and uh, sprinters, what kind of grade would you give yourself? Were you you a good coach back then? Or do you kind of cringe? Like, I can't believe I used to do this to those kids. (laughs) Well, like most things, I think it existed on a spectrum. So I think I did a good job of identifying the essentials, the KPIs and holding people accountable, you know, Mm -hmm establishing a technical model and some allowances for that model, depending on development, health, time of year, whatnot. Um, Interpersonal, I was terrible. I was still a little bit of top-down military. Hmm. Um, Way overused cynicism. Um, Probably, uh, 
Yeah, interpersonal skills. Although most athletes thought I was a player's coach, you know, I was probably a little too biased to accountability and, you know, uh, had absolutely no debrief plan at all. It was just kind of like, you know, get on with it. <laughs> that, you know, that's how my boss feels about me, Dan. He's just like, you know, just get on with it, Mike. <laughs> yeah. So where do we go from Carlisle? What was the next step here? Well, like I said, you know, this is before the information age. Like if we, uh, if we wanted video, we had a super eight movie camera with a cartridge and you'd video it and then you'd take it to a drop off and you'd wait three or four days for it to be processed. And then you had a hand crank uh, viewer with a fan blowing on it. So the film wouldn't melt while you stopped and measured things. <laughs> wait, and, hold on. <laughs> you know, there's a lesson there for people today who want to complain about the iPads and how hard it is to work. You had, first of all, the very uh, fact that you had to send, send it away and it would come back in three to four days. If something takes three to four minutes to process now, we get all up in arms. <laughs> well, chances are the problem you were working on three or four days ago had either been fixed or eliminated or right. arised. And uh, yeah, my master's thesis, I did an angle angle analysis in NCAA pole vault finals. And so I would project stuff on the wall, put onion skin paper, trace the figure, the shadow, uh -huh. take the paper down and measure the angles with a protractor. Every jump, every step for 18 finalists. That was quite a load. Oh, yeah. I was going to say that had to take some time. Yeah. So getting back to your question, yeah. um, one of the big aids for me was back then they had what we called um, coaching clinics. Hmm. So um, Scholastic Coach would sponsor a few. Uh, sometimes some of the indoor meets sponsored a coaching clinic, like we had the Cleveland meet and the Louisville meet and whatnot. And so I, I would travel, you know, if I had access and, you know, I'd sleep in my car or whatever, I'd go to these coaching clinics. And one of the first ones I stumbled into Tom Telez. He was a field event coach at UCLA then. And he got up and I think he was talking on um, jump dynamics or something. And I was just blown away. Like, here's a guy talking about biomechanics and kinesiology and the scientific process and whatnot. I was like, you know, th that's me. So I started stalking the guy. Like, if he spoke, I was there. And after he spoke, I followed him around and asked questions. And I'd get up for breakfast, like, at 5 a.m. and sit in the breakfast bar hoping he came down for breakfast and then I'd kind of bump into him and so I, I was a stalker <laughs> and so I'd had quite a bit of success as a high school coach and I thought you know I might want to try this university level stuff but so I sent out thousands of letters and back then they were just starting this graduate assistantship concept or paradigm and I wrote to all of them, Joe Piani at Notre Dame, you know, if, if the guy had profile, I wrote and I got zero responses. I was like, well, the mail end of things isn't working real well. So <clears throat> uh, my last year in high school, Coach Telez was hired away from UCLA to start the program at Houston. And I ran into him and I said, Coach, you know, I'm looking to do a graduate degree and I know Houston has a 
uh, they're starting a sports science graduate degree and that's kind of my realm and you know I was wondering if I came to Houston to study you know could I help out with the team and he was like well we don't have any money and yeah we yeah we're short-staffed and it's a startup and he goes we can always use help but like how are you going to survive us well you know I teach drivers ed I can substitute teach. My wife works as a bookkeeper. You know, we'll, we'll find a way. And he's like, well, whatever. And I think he just kind of blew me off. So I went home and told my wife we're moving to Houston. So we packed up a U-Haul, drove to Houston. I didn't know a soul, rented a house, and kind of did some homework, figured out where Coach T lived. And we rented an apartment really close to where he lived. So I stalked <laughs> him on his run because I knew he ran every day. <laughs> And I just showed up and he was like, what are you doing? I was like, I'm, I'm here. And I got into grad school and luckily uh, in the department HPE art and dance, you know, they, they had student teachers and they, they were short supervisors. Mm -hmm. And I was the only grad student that ever taught school. So I got drafted into being a supervisor for student teachers. So I'm driving all over Houston, observing teachers and writing critiques and, um, my little Chevy uh, didn't have air conditioning. So you can imagine driving around Houston, you know, oh, yeah. buying a jacket. You know, I was going through four or five shirts a day. So the grad program was at night, which is perfect. It was night school. It's designed for coaches to come back. And so during the day in the morning, I'd do the student teaching stuff. In the afternoon, I would do, I'd coach, you know, I'd help out, measure steps, rake pits, shag shots clean up the weight room, whatever it took. And then in the evening I did grad school. I can't imagine the, the worst part of that whole story was the driving around in a suit and tie in Houston that, that, that probably had to solidify a little bit of like, yeah, I'm not an office guy. Like I'm not a suit and tie guy. I'm a, I'm a coach guy. Well, teaching drivers ed to inner city kids uh, with the, the Houston freeway system was probably the most heart rendering uh, task I had. <laughs> So spend some time here with your time with Coach Telez. You know, I never got to know Coach Telez very well, just know of the godlike status in regards to coaching. Uh, I, I remember, I think it was Boo who told me once that Coach Telez had just an amazing eye. Like he didn't need to video anything. It's probably, maybe there was some hyperbole there, but uh, I don't know for Boo to be very hyperbolic though. Um, but that Coach Telez could watch a long jumper mm -hmm. And like in his own mind, he could help, he could slow-mo that down so he could see the positions and stuff like that. How was that learning from someone and observing someone uh, with those type of skills? It was like <clears throat> drinking from a fire hose. Um, so Coach T did a lot of film, a lot of film work. And uh, this before VHS day, so it was still the same thing. You had to send it off, get it developed. But because it was at Houston and they had football film and whatnot, they had a, a faster process. So usually we could get the film the next day. And it was still the same thing, hand crank projector with a fan blowing on it and looking at things. Hmm. So... <clears throat> Um, that's where I really got a, a big foundation on a technical model. And then I've allowed bandwidth for the various technical model components. So, uh, you know, it started there. And then, you know, coach was a tough teacher. You know, he, he, someone at throw, he goes, what'd you see? And I'd say something. He goes, yeah, but 
that problem was caused by something way earlier. What did you see earlier? And I was like, uh, nothing. And so it kind of started out where I could watch the pathway and the movement of one foot. And then I could watch two feet at once and then maybe the foot and the lower leg. So I just kind of worked up the food chain, you know, kind of looking at postures and body segments and whatnot. So it was a process and, you know, 50 years on, I, you know, I'm still nowhere close to what coach can see. Is that something that can be learned? And we're getting just a tad close to X's and O's, but I am curious, you know, when I coached, um, I could see generalities. And of course, you know, I only coached 10 years. I was a a baby and still a baby in the coaching world. Uh, But I I needed that, that film and to be able to slow-mo and see, you know, where the foot placements are. Is that what you're talking about there? Is that a a gift you think that can be learned with repetition or is that a a God-given ability that's just like, man, you either have it or, or you don't? Well, I think it exists on a spectrum. Some people see motion and shapes and whatnot, you know, the artist perspective of things. And then some people are math people. And so they're probably seeing angles more so and whatnot. But Mm. yeah, I mean, we teach, you know, coaches eye stuff all the time, like for postures, first Mm -hmm. foremost, shapes of the body at various phases of movement, body segments, angles of the joints and so on and so forth. So I think you can develop a checklist and over time uh, improve your coach's eye. And then, you know, I think it's always important to follow that up with video analysis to mm-hmm. kind of serve as a check and balance on mm-hmm. your eye. Hmm. You know, working with Coach Delez, I'll go ahead and say it, uh, assume that it had to be pretty special. What were some of the lessons learned? Again, not X's and O's, not what to do with a sprinter or a jumper, but the how to coach lessons that you gained by working with Coach T. Well, probably first and foremost was accountability. Like you didn't slide. Like if, if you did something, he told you what you did and what he thought needed to go better or whatnot or or what have you. So strong accountability. Uh, Programming, very simple, very basic, not a lot of menu items, you know, like I I knew anywhere in the world at any time of the year what people were doing because the program was the program. Hmm. Now he had some bandwidth allowances and whatnot in that, but um, he was what I would call a minimalist and really identified the essentials like what needed to be trained he wasn't a big drilled guy um, i mean he had some teaching progressions you know like with combined event athletes learning a new event but you know i really wouldn't call them drills it was more teaching progressions so he was kind of a, a new and in real time error detect error correct kind of coach uh, excellent on feedback and uh, sifting through uh, need to know versus nice to know really, really well. Hmm. And are you still working with, call it the complete spectrum of track and field, or are you zeroed in on sprinters or jumpers? Throwers? Uh, with Coach T? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, he had a small staff, so he was coaching everything. He had some assistants or whatnot, but he had his hands all over the place. So, yeah, I was there, and Howie Ryan was a distance coach and, you know, I'd help him on key workouts and, you know, when guys were all spread out through a park or whatnot. So yeah, I was coaching or I was, I wasn't coaching. I was there helping in every event. I wouldn't say I ever coached at the U of H. Hmm. 
Hmm. Was what, what time frame is this? And the only time frame I can kind of think of is Carl and Leroy and Floyd. Yeah, so I, that... I was there Carl's first two years. You know, okay. so I saw saw him come in as a freshman. Uh, he'd had some knee issues, and back then we didn't have arthroscope surgery. So Coach T switched his jumping leg. A lot of people don't realize in high school when he went to the Pan Am Games and medaled, he that was on his left leg, and the rest of his career was on his right leg. So I saw that transformation, and uh, we had a lot of decathletes and heptathletes. So, you know, again, a big general universal see how things fit kind of puzzle. And I'd be remiss if I, I didn't mention another mentor, Victor Lopez. He was a, a grad student at Houston at the time and eventually became longtime coach at Rice. And Victor came from Puerto Rico. His coaches were influenced by Calvasi and Vittoria in Italy and some Cuban influences. And so from Victor, I, I kind of learned the art side of coaching where Coach T, I was drinking from the fire hose on the science. So I really had a beautiful uh, setup there, you know, I could, all day long in the office from Victor, it was the art of coaching rhythm and, you know, seeing the big picture and the patterns and whatnot. And then all afternoon with Coach T, it was the science. So I, I was really blessed to grow up with two incredible mentors at that stage of my career. What was it like? You're coming from, you know, Carlisle in Southwest Ohio, small school, middle of nowhere type of, of area to, first of all, big city. You mentioned the Houston highway systems, which if you were saying they were messed up back then, I don't know how you would describe them today because it's 10x on what they have going on uh, in Houston now. But you also, you're talking about a time when you talked about Carl and some of the other guys. And uh, so, you know, you're getting athletes out of high school there that are, I mean, I, I would have to assume you did not even think could be imaginable in Carlisle. How was the, was there any kind of intimidation factor? Was there any kind of just like the story you told about Coach Tellez switching Carl's leg? Like that to me is a big thing. This, you know, Carl was the man out of high school as well. Let's not forget that. And, you know, obviously became legend of Houston and then legend uh, for Team USA. What was your mindset of like these athletes? You've got some amazing athletes around you. Did did you even realize that at that point? You know, Coach Tellez and Coach Lopez and Carl and the gang, did you kind of realize, did you even have any kind of sense of like, I'm kind of in a Mecca right now, soaking it all up? Yeah, I mean, it was kind of like going to Disneyland every day, to be honest. Uh, intimidation, though, because Coach Telez, you know, he, he taught in parables a lot of times. And, huh. you know, one, one day he was watching me, I was helping catch steps or something, and I said something to an athlete, and he pulled me aside, and he goes, Dan, sometimes it's so much what you don't say as to what you say, and that, like, whoa, so he, he was being kind. I was over coaching and probably over reporting. And so it really was an intimidation factor because, like I said, it wasn't like really directly coaching. It was kind of I knew my space and he established the boundaries and guardrails. And, you know, I respected those. So, how long were you there with Coach Telez and what was next? Yeah, I was there for three years, and then um, he he said it was time to leave the nest. So I went to Wichita State and worked with Herm Wilson oh, yeah. uh, for a year. Um, financials were a little bit shaky then. Um, back then, they had the U staff meet, you know, where the college guys and the and the pro guys kind of got together. Because mm -hmm. back then, it was the AAU and the NCAA battles. 
And this meat was kind of the only meat in the, in America where they co-mingled. Well, <clears throat> that was the year that Congress passed a bunch of the antitrust stuff and whatnot. So that meat died on the vine and I was left holding the bag. I had no money. Mm. Uh, so I basically worked in Wichita for a year for <laughs> hardly anything. And I think Coach Telez felt kind of bad, you know, that he helped me get that job and it blew up. So he helped me get a job at UTEP. And so after Wichita State, I went to UTEP and for the 83-84 season. And that that was a real education and baptism under fire. Any thoughts at this point? You know, you go to UH, uh, and, and I don't want to say you did it on a whim, but there was you know, it's not like you had a formal invitation. Like you said, you, you showed up and Coach T was like, oh, hi. <laughs> uh, thank God he allowed you to still be involved in everything. Then you go to Wichita and this blows up. Now you're going down to El Paso. Any part at this time, you know, you're married with uh, with your career about like, is this the right thing for me? Should I be trying to do something else that has a little bit more stability? Well, <clears throat> to be honest, I was so driven by the the journey, you know, luckily I had a wife that kind of open-minded. I don't think she was happy. I mean, we've moved 18 times in 47 mm. years of marriage. So, you mm. know, she, finally she just planted her feet in Austin and said, you go work wherever you got to work. <laughs> but, um, you know, at the time we were young and it was exciting. And, um, you know, El Paso was like going to Mars. You know, we, we grew up in the Midwest with all that. And then Houston, then you go out to the desert mountains and a total different culture is like, so it's just, it was exciting. You mentioned being so focused on the journey at that point of your age and stage and life and career. Was there an end game in sight? Was it like, I am working towards to become a head college coach or to become an Olympic coach, or was it just the journey was to coach? It was just a coach, like, to be honest, like at UTEP, I was named head women's coach. I wasn't prepared, wasn't qualified, but that was the role. And then men's field event coach. So again, baptizing mother under fire, you know, I'm coaching, you know, world top 10 ranked people, you know, 84 Olympics. I think I had seven athletes in the Olympic games, I had two gals, one medals. And so at age 30, I thought, Wow, friggin' genius. I got this thing figured out, but you know, then reality hit real quick. Um, hey, we've all had that at 30. I think 30 is that year where you just go, like, I'm a genius, and then 40, you're like, What in the world was I thinking? But uh, I've never had the desire to be a head coach or a director or whatnot. You know, I've I've had those roles placed upon me, but I'm I'm more a behind the curtain guy, like team photos I try to not be in or stand in the background or whatnot I, it, I've, I've never been a me out in front kind of guy I, I don't know why I, I, that's just me yeah my my experience with you I, I would agree with that you know I, I we'll get to a story uh that you really impacted my life when you were at Florida um back in 05 but uh kind of the same thing you're just kind of uh this is no meant for any disrespect but you're kind of a in, in the shadows in the corner guy but at the end of the day you know, who's, this is gonna be a little bit of overstatement, but you know, who's pulling the strings. What I mean by that, who's coaching. You, you never, you never, that's never in doubt. It's just, you're not the guy. I've never seen you be the guy that's in front, rah, 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 yelling at athletes. I, I just have never seen that nor heard that at all. Not my style. I, I'm quite uh, amazed. We're in around 84 at UTEP and the people that have been around you are, are quite stunning. You could stop right there and you have a, um, 
Mount Rushmore, people from Victor Lopez, Tom Telez, Herm Wilson. Come on. Uh, many people probably today don't remember Herm Wilson, but first of all, the guy was amazing, amazing person, but also an awesome coach. I'm, I'm just kind of floored by this, this, um, uh, people that had, you either surrounded yourself with or found yourself surrounded by at that point in, in this coaching profession. Yeah. So I, I give Herm credit, uh, like <clears throat> recruiting to Wichita, Kansas wasn't easy. And he basically recruited Kansas, Colorado, uh, Kansas City area. And so hours and hours in the car and home visits and looking for sleepers and, and whatnot. So I really learned the recruiting game from Herm. And Herm was friggin' genius at finding sleepers and developing people. You know, he'd have top 20 cross-country teams and all the guys were from about an hour away, you know, just uh, really good at developing local talent. And so he taught me the recruiting side of things for sure. And then mm -hmm. at, at UTEP, it was more, Larry Heidebrecht was the head coach, but it was more of the athletes. You know, we had people like Burke Cameron and Mill Dottie and my two medalists, Kim Turner, Charmaine Crooks, and Cynthia Henry in the long jump. And, you know, I started coaching the hammer. I never, I'd never even seen the hammer. A guy walks in my office, uh, Tori Janssen. He's like 6'8", 280 pounds from Norway. Hi, I'm Tori. I throw hammer. Do you know hammer? And I was like, no, I don't, but I'm here to learn. Uh, and then a year later, he broke world record in the indoor weight throw. And, you know, it's just the, the athletes there. And that started beyond my international networking then because mm -hmm. In the summers, I'd go to Europe by your rail pass and travel over Europe and go to these guys and gals clubs and see how they're coached and meet their personal coach and their federation people trying to get background and, hmm. you know, going to meets and, you know, following the Russians, East Germans around, see how they warmed up for meets and what they did and all of that. And then I stumbled onto another mentor in that process, Bjorn Bloomberg. He was a Swedish coach and following at their sport high school and he was a big throws guy and he became super influential and Bjorn was Estonian by birth so he had studied in Kiev at the Moscow or at the Kiev Sport Institute and Leipzig in the East German so he had access to all the Eastern Bloc literature and shared generously so that's where I really expanded my understanding of programming and the essentials and, you know, integrated sports science, you know, in a high performance setting. Now, Dan, one of the things we have two main goals here, one is to uplift and honor your journey, which, you know, we're not even halfway in and it's, it's astounding. I'm just, I'm like a kid in a candy store here. The other goal is to bring value to those who choose to listen to us. We're just so humbled that anybody would press play. These are not easy podcasts to listen to because they're hour, hour and a half, two hours. We're, we're going to be all of two plus hours today. Um, so I want to sprinkle in a little value here because you, you just mentioned something that I think might be fairly common. Um, I was going to pigeonhole this to college coaches, but maybe high school coaches too. You said I'd never coached Hammer and in walks this six foot eight, <laughs> that may be the first place to start, get someone who's six foot eight, uh, hammer thrower. How did you, again, not talking about the X's and O's, what actual drills and such that you did with with uh, uh, this guy, but how did you start to learn the hammer then? You're kind of thrown into it. You got a hammer thrower. I'm, I'm thinking about uh, Florida just added the javelin uh, not too long ago for high school. So here are a bunch of high school coaches probably really good at coaching the shot and discus and now 
they're forced <laughs> for some of them. Uh, others are are super happy uh, that they're going to have to start coaching the javelin. How do you, as a coach who you're good, you know how to coach, but here's a brand new event. How do you embrace that and do right for the athlete as a, as the coach? Well, the first thing is there's a lot of commonalities in various events. So throwing's throwing. I mean, the hammer throw guy turns around the circle a few times and then releases the hammer and there's vertical horizontal factors, translational factors. So what are the essentials for throwing? You know, teach what you know. So from the shot and the disc, you, you know certain postures at certain phases of the throws. So then you start looking, okay, what are the postures and I've always been a common denominator rather than model whoever's hot is mm. like, who are the 10 best? And what are the common things they're doing at the various phases of the throw? So my first stop was to get just shitloads of photo sequences of the top hammer throwers. Mm. Um, get uh, Aura McMurray had all these uh, Super 8 films that you can buy from track and field news. And mm. I got everything he had on the hammer throw and then you know i'd put that up and tori would come in and we would talk about it um you know we'd have film of tori so we'd put up compare and contrast and say okay double support here you are and here's where sadiq is and here's single support and here's your posture and you know we'd look at orbitals you know like there's some essentials to throw so we know like the orbitals and highs and lows should kind of stay on a line. And if the orbitals are offset, then you're probably going to split vectors and not throw as far. So it's kind of respecting the essentials and the common denominators, using a lot of compare contrast from, you know, best model, best practice to where you're at. And then, you know, coaches kind of, we hierarchically rank viruses we see in athletes. So dysfunctional movements or things that bother us or whatnot. So developing a nice hierarchy list of problems. So Tori was six, eight, really long waisted. So he lost his upper body positioning a lot. So that was a theme is like, you know, we got to stabilize this upper body. If you're leaning this way and this way or back or whatnot, you know, those are big rocks. Like let's get the big rocks done really well. Mm -hmm. And then luckily he was, he knew the event really well. And we had a bunch of post-collegiate guys like Peter Farmer and Terry Gent that were around still throwing and, you know, radical ideas. Peter is from Australia and trained a lot in Europe and, uh, and uh, Gent was from Ireland and he had the Irish look. And so there was kind of a commingling of philosophies and whatnot. And just step back and deductive reasoning and it was like okay he believes this this guy believes this this guy believes this probably somewhere in the middle you know i'm i'm picturing that where you had those kinograms of you know the top 10 and you have uh was it tory is, is that his name yeah. and you have tory and you're like all right see where you are well, okay maybe we need to do this it, it seems like sounds like you really leaned into collaboration with the athlete yeah. I've always been a collaborator. Like I said, when I was a young coach, I wasn't very good on debriefing and it really wasn't a term until what, probably 10 years ago. Right. Um, but I always interviewed athletes like before practice, how you feel and where are you sore, anything stiff, you know, how's life one-on-one. And then mm -hmm. 
informal debriefs during the workout, you know, like how hard was that, you know, on a one to 10 scale or, you know, at the end of the workout, what did you like? What didn't you like? What didn't you understand? Mm -hmm. You know, so I've always kind of been a collaborator because I think as a young coach or as a young athlete, I was never asked what's going on in my world. And, you know, a lot of my coaching principles probably came from bad coaching as a high schooler, you know, top down authoritarian punishment, no dialogue, just do it. You're injured, rub dirt on it, keep going. Um, you know, those kinds of things that always stuck in me. And I always swore that, you know, I would never coach the way I was coached by a lot of the various coaches I had. And then also, <clears throat> I think, I I sought all kinds of advice and, you know, a lot of times people just wouldn't respond. Coach Telez was one of the few that would answer questions after he gave a speech at a clinic or whatnot. And I was, Mm -hmm. that was another box. I was like, if I'm ever positioned to help a young coach or an athlete, I'm going to do it because I know what it's like to be a young athlete asking Mm -hmm. for help and not getting it or a young coach asking for help and not getting it. So, Mm -hmm. I think those scars, if you will, really drove my operational uh, mindset and still to this day. Speaking of that, where are you in regards to you teaching others at this point? Are you speaking at clinics at all? Are you, I don't know if there were, um, uh, the track technique was around there. Are you writing any articles? What are you doing coaching ed wise? Well, I, I consult a lot with the Altus group and we have all kinds of courses and exploration courses and we have mentorships, um, you know, live mentorships. Um, I have mentorships through various organizations around the world. Um, you know, I advise probably 50, 60 coaches weekly. I'm sorry. What were you doing at this point? You're at UTEP. What are you oh, doing? At yeah, UTEP? No, yeah. I was in my own world. Uh, yeah. Luckily, I st- uh, they started coaching Ed then. So the, I think one of the first projects is you went to the uh, Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs and they had these learn by do courses. So they had guys like Joe V. Hill, Coach yeah. Telez, and Ken Shannon, and um, John Arunyan, the hurdle guy from Northern California. And you spent a week at the training center sleeping in pretty bad conditions, eating pretty bad food, and you had to go out and learn these events, kind of the ABCs. And so that was another trip. You know, I got in the station wagon, drove two days to Colorado, you know, spent a, a week doing that. And so coaching Ed was just starting. And then at UTEP, uh, they they started, the I think, level one. Uh, and back then it was TAC. Mm-hmm. And so I was kind of on the ground floor with that, with Vern Gambetta and Gary Winkler. Mm-hmm. And uh, Coach Hill was kind of the, the godfather, Coach Telez. And mm-hmm. And Coach Veal were kind of the godfathers on that. So I was kind of on the ground there. And then simultaneously, Victor started the NACAC group in the Caribbean. Right. So I started, you know, presenting courses and talking about events and whatnot with Victor. You know, all of us did. Lauren Seagrave, Vern Gambetta, Gary Wilson, Jerry, uh, all of us were, you know, in the Caribbean and you know, level one down there, I think was a week, level two was two weeks. And so we'd take time away and help Victor out with that for like no money at all. I'd come back to my wife and go, you lost money. Like, why are you doing this? And um, 
So in, in my UTEP days, it started with the TAC group and then the NACAC group. Uh, I, I don't think NACAC was the name then, but, you know, that was the foundation. Yeah, I remember that, that I only knew of that because of Victor. I still remember those little ads he would have in uh, track and field news and track technique. I remember those. Absolutely. So where, how long at UTEP and what, where, well, and why next? Well, two years, and then uh, we, we had a huge scandal. So, uh, they, you know, the athletes were being paid. You know, we had world number one guys, and they were getting money under the table and whatnot, and it blew up. And everybody left town except for me. I was kind of left holding the bag. And, you know, ultimately, you know, I was cleared of any wrongdoing. And the AD Saying, so I'd bumped into Lauren Seagrave, and he was like, "Hey, we're trying to, you know, really build the women's program at LSU, and um, we need a men's field event coach, and you'd be the guy." And so we moved to Baton Rouge. Wow, that's a pretty good place, and with a pretty good guy, Lauren Seagrave, to learn from. You'd already had experience with him. Yeah, and Billy Maxwell was the men's coach. Oh, yeah. And uh, I mean, we had a crazy staff. Andy McGinnis was a Canadian sprint hurdle coach. Yeah. And, um, Sam Seams was kind of the ops director before that term was even out. And uh, it was 11 years of incredible experiences. You know, when we got there, I don't think women had ever even had a gal make it to nationals. And in 11 years, we won 19 national titles indoors and out with the men and women, like I think 11 in a row with the women. And, you know, it was, it was ground up. It was a wild west days, you know, probably half the rules in the rule book came from, you know, gray areas we explored while we were at UTEP, but uh, it was tremendous uh, learning experience and journey and great people in Louisiana and culture and food and, um, still my wife's favorite place to live our, our kids were raised there you know during their adolescent years and so a lot of fun memories of baton rouge and louisiana i love connecting all the pieces because as you were mentioning billy maxwell and uh although that gang i was like wait a minute we had sam seams on the podcast back in october and I remember Sam talking about that's where he kind of got his coaching from Western Kentucky, another steel pole vaulter, by the way, back in the day yep. in, in Kentucky. So I love that connection there. It, it's hard to imagine. You mentioned that LSU really hadn't won anything up to that point. That, that's hard. You know, my, my history only goes so far back and, and all of my history with LSU is they always win. There's always national titles. There's always all Americans, uh, national champions there. You guys were kind of on that ground floor of actually building that up with Lauren and Billy. I mean, just, uh, amazing crew there yeah i think the men had won a national title in 1933 <laughs> and uh you know sec they, they they weren't on the radar at all and the women i mean it was it was ground zero i mean hmm. first couple of years we took big risk and probably missed more than we hit but you know it was pretty hard to attract people to a school that had no history or culture or reputation and um, you know, we had to bang, bang the trees, you know, my international connections and Annie's connections in Canada, we, we had to kind of lean on the foreign arm quite a bit initially. And then uh, Billy had a lot of East Coast connections. So we recruited the crap out of the East Coast. And uh, the talent pool in Louisiana was was 
pretty sparse, to be honest. The level of coaching wasn't that great, but we went out and banged the trees and found sleepers and whatnot. And, you know, I'd probably say a third of the athletes who were all Americans for me were walk-on kids from Louisiana. What do you, as you're going through that, and I love that you ended that story with that sentence there that, you know, a third were walk-ons from Louisiana. Do you get more satisfaction out of that, um, I'm not even going to throw numbers because that would pigeonhole you into an event, a, a walk-on type of kid that goes on to become an All-American or that All-American high schooler that comes in and goes on to a great pro career. Where, where's more satisfaction for you? Well, I'm not a favorites guy. So I'm a buy-in or curtain guy and not a favorites guy. So I get asked all the time, what's your favorite food or country or whatnot? So, you know, it's spectral. It's like, where am I at? what's going on you know they're both tremendously rewarding um if i had to bias because of how i grew up you know i'm probably the underdog guy the walk-on guy yeah uh i'm probably a little more driven you know with that walk-on athlete mm -hmm. and you know a prima donna entitled uh parachute helicopter athlete Right. Uh, I would have been a great disappointment for you. I would have been that underdog, but I unfortunately would have stayed the, the underdog. You, you I, I would have challenged all your coaching on how good it could actually change a human. <laughs> well, I mean, sometimes, you know, a shift of one inch is way more powerful than a shift of a mile. Mm. Uh, you know, that is so over my head. That was such a smart thing. I, I can't even concept that. Remember, I went to school, high school in, a, in a college in Alabama, Dan. So, you know, you got to tone it down a little bit for me to understand. Okay. <laughs> Where are you at at this time with LSU? You're growing that program with the crew that is with you there. And again, just another, you know, who's who Mount Rushmore people, uh, great coaches and great people and just and really you know, for my generation, groundbreaking coaches, and you're right there with them, you know, you're doing things that, you know, we never would have thought of that were even possible. Where are you with your other sports? You know, today, I know you as a guy that can go work with baseball players, NFL people, of course, track, are you st strictly just track? Or is there any branching out with any other sports, uh, athletic training, you know, those, those other things that you, uh, you know, are highly skilled at today? Yeah, I'd kind of developed by then kind of a reputation on return to play work, you know, mm. coming back from injuries or rehab or whatnot. So I was dabbling on that. And a lot of the sport coaches like Jeff McDonald, the tennis coach there, if they had an injury factor or the gymnastics coach or whatnot, you know, I'd, I'd make suggestions or, you know, try to work around the training room and not step on toes or what have you. And then uh, Jerry Sullivan was a receivers coach and he'd have guys that were maybe a step slow getting ready for the combine or whatnot. And, you know, I'd work with uh, his receiver guys. So that's how I kind of got into the NFL world hmm. and had success with a few guys uh, through Jerry and, you know, Jerry, you know, all through his career, I would always send guys a step slow or a guy coming off of surgery or whatnot. So that was the beginning of a long-term relationship there, but, you know, some basketball guys would come in, you know, coming off a knee injury or a gymnast off of, uh, you know, a knee surgery or ankle surgery and whatnot. So it was start probably the beginning of that kind of branching out into the return to play world and consultancy world. You know, a guy like me, I see those as two fairly different things, meaning the uh, return to play and the coaching track and field. 
did you see them as two different avenues or was it all kind of the same? I'm learning very much about you, Dan, here. Spectrum. Absolutes are not uh, absolutes. Or did you, so did you see those as two different branches or was that a spectrum of the same type of uh, human performance, if you will? Well, whether it's track and field or a different sporting event, I kind of use the pyramid analogy. You got physical literacy as a base. So, you know, identify the components of physical literacy. And then the next level is global sport literacy. So like running, change in direction and what have you. And then there's specific sport literacy. So whether you're with a healthy athlete or an injured athlete, you still have to respect where they're at on the pyramid. So for me, it's pretty similar operating paradigms. And, it, and it's regardless of the sport, because and I'm going to maybe maybe answer this because track is the basis of all sports. You know, receiver is running track, right? A lineman is doing a lot of track movements. Is that why you can go from sport to sport to sport? It's really athlete, not sport driven. Well, I think in track and field, you, you kind of have to wear a biomechanics hat and a physiology hat and a programming hat and a plan B hat. You know, let's be honest, track and field coaches are genius at plan B because plan A sell, seldom happens. So I think you're kind of used to wearing all these hats and you know when to put one on and take one off. Hmm. I like that. Uh, okay, keep us moving forward. Uh, LSU for how many years? In uh, eleven years. Eleven years, and to this day, it was your wife's favorite place. So this had to be kind of hard to leave and yeah. go to the next step. So <clears throat> public schools were a challenge in, in Baton Rouge back then, and we had two kids entering primary school, and they were both in private schools, uh, which at the time was about ten k each. And my wife had a job. I had a job. And unfortunately, LSU kept firing football coaches. So the track coaches never got raises. There wasn't a bonus system. We were in all these nationals and it was kind of a handshake. And here's a certificate. Mm -hmm. So financially, we, we were struggling. You know, we still hadn't been able to buy a home. We're still renting mm -hmm. and whatnot. And uh, uh, Bubba Thornton called me. He just got appointed the head coach at Texas. And he said, you know, I'm looking for, you know, field event, combined event guy and, you know, a guy that can do a lot of the duties I don't like to do, like travel and equipment and management. And I was like, yeah, I'm your guy. And so it was a monster pay raise. And we could put our kids in a public school. We moved around Rock with really good schools. So it was not only a pay increase, but a huge income increase because of the private schooling cost. And um, so eight years at the University of Texas, um, tremendous education on politics hmm. and bureaucracy, uh, but worked for a tremendous AD, DeLos Dodds, who was track coach, longtime track coach at Kansas State. Um, the only AD I ever had come into my office after a meet and talk shop is that right? Which I would yeah. expect that from Delos. I know, you know, big track background there. Uh, no, no other AD even like, hey, so how'd it go? Or, hey, I saw you guys broke this record. Nothing. Nope. Oh, man. That just makes me sad for ADs. <laughs> That's not good. Um, at Texas, and Bubba Thornton, amazing coach, uh, a guy that kind of gets lost because he hasn't coached in a while now. So not like he in our young um, 
acute memories. We, we forget what Bubba did uh, at the schools that he was at and at Texas and the many, many All-Americans and sprinters and just full teams he had there. Are you at this point, I mean, it, it's quite disappointing, but probably understandable, maybe, that you mentioned being there at LSU for so long and you know, your statement was we still weren't even able to buy a house. Like that's just so disappointing, right? That, you know, our track coaches, like, I mean, just bare minimum care can, can afford a house. You go to Texas, which changes some things uh, there for you. How was the experience of now? Are you Dan Path, someone like in today's world, you're Dan Path, someone people seek out. It feels like somewhere maybe at the LSU level, it switches because before that I'm getting the feeling of like, you're certainly leading, but people are, you are still seeking out other people and getting educated and being educated and uh, going to Europe and learning different systems. Do, do, does that, did that flip at LSU or did that flip at Texas? Or how do you, you think about that? Well, I think it, it probably started the tail end of LSU and then really blew up at Texas. So I started coaching some post-collegiates at LSU. And they had success on the world stage. And then more and more people came. So like a Donovan Bailey shows mm -hmm. up, and you know, people like that. And so because of that profile, more and more people would visit, you know, mm -hmm. European coaches, European athletes, people from Australia, whatever. So probably the success of the post-collegiate athletes on the world stage probably drove the, the mentorship or people coming by to, you know, talk shop or, you know, dialogue or, you know, increase each other's network or what have you. Um, so I, I would say the post-collegiate expansion probably drove that more than what I was doing on the college level. Mm. Um, and that said, you know, with Victor's work in the NACAC region, you know, a lot of Caribbean coaches or athletes would stop in for various lengths of visits. So I would say the exposure in the NACAC region and then the success of our post-collegiates on the world stage probably drove the uh, the expansion of uh, the network, if you will. Mm -hmm. And you've had success at kind of the three levels, high school, and, and that's a little bit downplaying when I say success here, a, a lot of success and high level success at all kind of three levels here, the high school, the collegiate and post-collegiate. So you've worked with 16-year-olds. 36 year olds that are at high level, uh, high level mentally, as far as like wanting to be better, you know, listening, yes, sir, no, sir. What do I got to do? You know, those, those kind of things. Is there a level or any of those levels easier than the other? And, and what I mean by that is I, I think of, and I've coached high school and college, definitely don't have anywhere near experience on the, the uh, post-collegiate side, but on the high school level, I could answer that and say, yes, it's easier in high school because they're kids. They want to have fun. That's more fun. That's that's easier. I could also say for college, well, that was easier because I had higher quality athletes when I was at Mississippi State. So we got to do more things. And, you know, maybe it's more fun to win an SEC uh, title than it is to win a, you know, a Corn Belt High School Conference title. That's an actual conference around here. Uh, but also maybe you could tell me on the post-collegiate, like, yeah, you know what's easier and more fun? Man, uh, winning a gold medal, Mike, that's that's uh, more fun and easier. Is there a level for you that is more enjoyable, more satisfaction? No, I kind of crave diversity. So, you know, currently, I, you know, I coach age group kids in my neighborhood, you know, with tennis, basketball or baseball or 
I've got 80-year-old masters athletes I work with. I'm currently directly coaching three Paralympic sprinters around the world. So, you know, each stage or event or sport is a unique puzzle, and I like puzzles, and I enjoy the puzzles. Um, and I, I really need diversity. Like, um, I kind of saw a trend or pattern myself, like, you know, in the in the university setting, as the season goes down, your squad numbers go down. And so you go, you know, you might start out the fall with 40 kids in your field event group. And then by the time you get to nationals, there's probably five or six left standing. Right. And I just saw a trend that I overcoached the shit out of these kids when the group got too small. So mm -hmm. I'm one of those guys that kind of needs a bigger group and diverse groups and you know, I've had, had stops where I'm the throws guy or the jumps guy or the sprints guy. And again, those are slippery slopes for me. So I just figured out early on that I need diversity and I need numbers. Hmm. That's me. You mentioned you're working with younger athletes in the eight, nine, 10 years old. Do they have any idea who you are? No. <laughs> Do their parents? Yeah, most of the parents in this day and age, they Google you or, yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever. And, uh, but m most of the kids, I'm just Mr. Dan. And it's like, uh, hey, I'm I'm having trouble with free throws. Can you can you watch me? And, you know, yeah, poor. Hey, I, I rolled my ankle. What should I do? Mr. Dan. I love that. <laughs> well, it's still the deep south, right? That's right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I love that. I wonder if there's like a parent who who doesn't do their due diligence and Google you and they're like, you know, that, that Dan guy, I just don't know that he knows what he's talking about. And it's like, man, just hit the Google button, buddy. <laughs> well, hmm. I, I say this in a lot of uh, presentations, you know, as a coach, you got to reprove yourself every day. And uh, I don't care what your CV is, you know, especially in this day and age, you know, you, you got to reprove yourself every day on a lot of levels. Yeah, that's good. And that that's a good like um, keeping your humility uh, in check as well. It's like, you know, if you keep thinking you're you don't ever have to prove yourself anymore. It's like, well, do you does that mean you still don't try to learn more? Does that mean you're not trying to experiment and do what's right for athletes? You know, athletes are different today than they were yesterday. This athlete's different from that athlete. How do you keep yourself uh, hungry, if you will, uh, to keep the knowledge level going? Yeah, I just got off a call this morning with one of my direct uh, athletes and we were going, <clears throat> looking at film from behind and looking at movement pathways of the foot axis and all that. And, you know, he just point blank, he goes, are you sure that that's just not how I am? And I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure uh, that we can fix this or clean this up. And so, you know, and I've been with this guy since 2009 hmm. and wow. you know, I'm, I'm still having to revalidate my stance <laughs> I uh, love it. All right. Well, we, we got a lot of topics to keep going. So I want to keep pushing forward in the career, Dan. Uh, how long at Texas and what was next? So I, I kind of got burnt out on the politics and um, the grind uh, of college coaching, you know, like, unfortunately, my family, my wife and my kids paid a tremendous price for my career. And uh, I was really looking for a way to kind of back off, you know, like NCAA track, you started traveling beginning of January. And then I was in Europe all summer with these postgrads. So basically nine months of the year, I wasn't around. Mm -hmm. And um, 
So I thought, well, you know, I'm having success with these pro guys. Let me get a small pro group and, and where I can kind of control things a lot more and maybe bring in an assistant to do some of this stuff. And so I went into a private practice, which was probably not a great idea. One of the first profile clients was Marion Jones. And uh-huh. Nike had kind of hired me to oversee her and Tim Montgomery. And uh, mm. that ended up to be quite a shit show and mm. five years of lawsuits and a mm. million dollar in legal cost uh, mistake. And oh. <clears throat> while I was recovering from that, uh, to safeguard assets, my lawyer suggested I move to Florida because Florida is a great place to protect your assets. And so uh, luckily there was an opening at Florida and Mike Holloway called me uh, a mid-year opening. And so I moved to Florida uh, in January. Uh, I think that was 05 maybe. And um, so I coached two years at the University of Florida while we fought all these legal battles. I did not realize that was going on during this time. I, I knew it was 05 because that's when you and I overlap. I'm at Mississippi State and you are at Florida. Um, I have to imagine, you know, not diving into all the kerfluff that was going on, but for a guy who seemingly really enjoys being on the track or the field with athletes and solving problems, all that side of things, the um, the court side and all that stuff had to be some of the most uh, the the least enjoyable time of your life. Like all that is the exact opposite of being on the track, helping people move better. Well, I'll be honest. It was the first time I ever thought about leaving coaching. Sure. You know, it's like, you know, my whole life I've helped people been honest, transparent. And then, you know, this happens and <clears throat> like, I'm not exaggerating. We were probably about 1.2 million in the hole with legal costs. Cause this went through four or five appeals and all kinds of stuff. And then mm. uh, people declare bankruptcies and whatnot and sponsors bail out and you don't have the legal power to go after, you know, a, a corporation like Nike. So right. basically you're just left holding the bag. And mm. um, you know, I actually had to call Amy Acuff, the high jump gal that mm. I was working with and get a loan just so we could pay our rent for a couple of months. So it, it was pretty dire times and it almost got me out of coaching. Yeah. Not sure anybody would have blamed you. Yeah. Yeah. So when you go to Florida, uh, this is where you and I intersect personally. So I had uh, been to uh, some camps and clinics uh, that you had been at and read a lot of your stuff. And at that time, I think, Oh, five. We're probably still VHS in it. So I probably watched a few VHS t- tapes that had you in. Uh, I'm in, in the Oh five season. I'm in my second year at Mississippi state uh, coaching jumpers and helping with the sprinters. And uh, we go to secs at Vanderbilt and you had a really fantastic athlete. I believe his name was Mike Morrison. I believe he was the long jump, triple jump and high jumper. Did I get, is it, was it Mike yeah. Morrison? Yeah. From, yeah. from Jersey, of course, of all places. New I Jersey. Just love Jersey athletes. It's quite phenomenal. The athletes that come out of that, come out of that state. Well, he, he was also a 45 point relay guy. Oh, I don't think I knew that. Oh my gosh. So we're at Vanderbilt for SECs. And I don't know, you've been to so many tracks 
you are completely forgiven for not remember this. The long jump was over by the um, chain link fence outside of the track and the trees were not cut. So like there was a branch like right at your right at the penultimate for the long jump. It was just terrible. But we're having this battle long jumping. And my kid, Christopher Lewis, who was like a 19 foot kid out of high school, love Christopher Lewis, a genius, genius guy. Uh, he takes the lead. Mike Morrison comes. He It was really unkind to Mike Morrison because he was also high jump at the same time. So he was running back and forth. Uh, Mike took the lead or put pressure. Well, all said and done, uh, my kid from Mississippi State ends up winning. I think Mike was second. I think my other kid was fourth. And that was phenomenal. That was my first SEC champion for like my own, like I'd helped uh, Dudley and the crew with the sprints and we had some amazing sprinters there, but this was my first, like, okay, I took over all of the Christopher's uh, training and we won a long jump title. It was amazing. Right. And I'm just so pumped. I'm so excited. Uh, Kendall Pint's the kid who got uh, fourth for me. It was just, we were all happy. And then Dan Path, you purposely walk over to me extend your hand and say, Hey, congratulations. And Dan, I know it's hard to think about when you're in the moment and who you are. And you're so humble that sometimes maybe you don't remember you. you, you I think you honestly think of yourself as Mr. Dan. You're like, I'm just Dan path and I'm just Mr. Dan. I just, you know, help kids. But when you came over to me, when you purposely came over to me, that was the, what was very succinct for me. It wasn't like we passed each other and you fist bumped me. You, you came over to me and shook my hand and said, Hey, congratulations. That is one of the top moments of my coaching career, my friend. Cause here was this guy that I looked up to. Here was my Mount Rushmore of coaches who easily, you didn't have to come over. You didn't, you, you probably had somewhere else to go. Mike Morrison probably had another event to do. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, you, the, the humility, the humbleness that you showed by coming over to a young coach and saying, congratulations and shaking my hand, it made me feel on top of the world. It, it gave me so much, not credibility. What's the word I'm thinking here? Confidence. It's like, oh my goodness, maybe I actually can do something in this world. I don't know if I can become a Mr. Dan, but maybe I, I can, I can be something in this profession. It was, um, it's a memory. I mean, that was 2005. So that's, we're getting close to 20 years ago. <laughs> that's how old we're getting, Mr. Dan. Uh, it's quite amazing. And I remember every second of that film, if you will, of my life that happened, man. So um, I don't know that I've ever gotten a chance and I'm so uh, humble that I get to do this publicly right now. Uh, thank you so much. I, I Here's what I know. I know I'm one of like a thousand coaches that have a story like that, that you have touched other coaches, young coaches lives in such an easy manner, right? It wasn't, you didn't come over and say, you know, if you would uh, do your penultimate this way, he would have jumped X, Y, and Z or, Hey, blah, blah. it was just a gratitude, a thankfulness, a humbleness to say congrats. And uh, it meant the world to me, my friend. And I'm just so proud that I get to like publicly thank you. I get to represent thousands of other coaches that right now are going, oh yeah, Dan did that to me too. And Dan did this. And if Dan wouldn't have told me this, or if Dan wouldn't have spent time with me after this clinic, I wouldn't be who I am today. Uh, I'm just, it's kind of a cool little thing being the host of this podcast that I get to like publicly represent thousands of people that you have positively affected uh, really around the, the country not, or around the world, not just uh, the country, man. So thank you so much for your, your humbleness there. 
Well, thanks for saying that. <clears throat> you never know how you're going to touch people. And, you know, it doesn't always have to be elaborate or whatnot. And, you know, maybe I'm a little bit old school, but I, I think sportsmanship is an important component of, of sport and coaching. And, uh, um, you know, there's probably a few guys I wouldn't shake hands with because of how they've done it. <laughs> but, you know, if, if someone did it right and they kicked my ass, then you should congratulate them. Yeah. I mean, they beat you. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I, again, I, uh, you know, half the reason I wanted you on the podcast was so I could publicly tell you, thank you, man. It really was. It was, um, like I said, it's a moment nearly 20 years ago that I will, I'll never forget. I'll never forget that you came down to my level and said, congratulations, man. Well, hopefully, you know, some of the takeaways for people on this will be that, hey, words matter, a conversation mm -hmm. matters, and, you know, a few words can change a person's career or life. Yeah, absolutely. And you did. It's it's amazing. Uh, okay, you're at UF. Uh, you're with Mouse, one of my favorite people. Uh, guest number 30, by the way, on the Gill Connections podcast. Just a humbling, humbling man who uh, really has, I mean, you think about 05 Mouse to 2022 mouse <laughs> uh he's got a few more rings and a few more olympians and records and uh uh since then he's done a, an amazing job and it really you go back and listen to his podcast if you're listening today because uh again a lot of mentors that poured into his life again we don't do this on our own we do this on the shoulders of others uh and mouse is certainly one who has transition from being on the shoulders of a lot of people to now having a lot of uh, coaches on his shoulder as he mentors people around uh, around the around the world really around the country and around around the world so how long at Florida as you're going through this just utter crap through the court systems uh, does it renew anything because you talked about you know there was a, a heartbeat there about maybe getting out of this coaching profession did it bring back any passion or what what how did that go there in Gatorland I was in, you know, I was probably in a fog, you know, so I was kind of doing things uh, by memory or whatnot and probably didn't do, and it's probably not my best two years of coaching. Miles hmm. um, was super understanding and supportive and uh, gave me a lot of latitude. Um, you know, things that stood out from Miles is he developed a, a very defined culture and accountability and uh, was super organized and hmm. um so it was easy to operate in the fog in that construct but uh, uh, i would say my two years there i was kind of in a fog you know i was trying to hold a marriage together and try to avoid bankruptcy and you know i was flying in and out for court appearances hmm. and, and still coaching a few pro guys on the side and, and whatnot and i'd really say the some of the key athletes of Florida and some of the key pro people that I was coaching really kind of pulled me out of the, the really deep, dark hole that I was in. Yeah. We talk about stressors for athletes and how it can affect performances. Well, we forget that, you know, coaches are humans too. And so uh, you've got all these stressors just beating you up from the outside. It kind of makes you not want to go to, to work that day. And, and what motivation do you have to continue to educate yourself and get better? It's like, man, I'm just trying to wake up tomorrow morning uh, <laughs> at the end of the day, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. I, I would kind of call those two years there as tread water years, you know, like, mm. Hopefully I didn't do extreme harm, but, you know, I, it really wasn't my uh, two best years of coaching by any stretch. 
you kind of look back and think, man, I could have done X, Y, and Z. I just wasn't in the, Oh yeah. 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 It's too bad. What, what happened after those two years? Well, so then we moved to the Bay area, Amy Cuff and Susie Powell had befriended a, a builder, a construction a tycoon that was developing a training center in the Bay That's area. Right. And at the time it was called Tiger Bar. Yes. And uh, so we developed a small training group out there, you know, had people like Amy and Susie and Ty Harvey, Amy's uh, husband and uh, Brad Walker came in, <laughs> Tommy Skipper came in, That's Nikki right. McEwen and Becky Holiday came in. So we probably, uh, Brian DeCuna, uh, mm. probably had a group of about 12 athletes training in a kind of a warehouse on an island. I remember, yeah. I Rio do. I, Vista, California. And then, um, unfortunately, the housing collapse occurred right as we were getting started. And so the builder kind of, had to pull away and we were left mm -hmm. floundering. And so we ended up uh, with a pole vault club in the Bay area uh, and they had connections in Stockton. So we rented a, a warehouse in the port of Stockton, an old Naval warehouse. And Ty Harvey got AstroTurf from the Olympic training center. And we built runways and tracks in this big, huge Naval warehouse and built pole vault runways and long jump runways and it was cold as balls in there in the winter. And we had a dining tent. We wrapped it in plastic with a space heater. And you'd go in and warm up and then jump <laughs> out. And we had space heaters at the end of the pole vault runway to warm your hands. And uh, Ty had set up all these security cameras. So we had cameras from every perspective all synced. Mm. Um, so it was kind of cool. I, I can't remember the year on that. But we put quite a few people on the, the world team then. Um, I think it was Osaka. And mm. uh, so that was kind of a three-year detour to the Bay Area. And then from there, I segued to running the Olympic Training Center in San Diego. Uh, the USOC had overtaken it from the Federation. And I was hired by the USOC to kind of run the program. And a uh, successful gig there. I think the most they'd ever had on a national team before us was three or four athletes. And we put uh, eight uh, on... Um, you know, the Olympic team that year. I, I didn't remember Chula Vista. I remember the tiger bar. Cause I remember driving out, you said an Island. I remember that it was kind of a winding and uh, I hadn't been to California very many times. And I remember I turned the, I was in the car, turned, you know, around the corner as I'm traveling and out of nowhere, there's this peacock. I mean, it was just like, like right there. And I was like, what in the world? Like, this is such a strange land out here in California, man. Um, and then that's where I first met Brad Walker. You were working him out. He was doing so weird how you remember these things, this uh, single leg, you know, had a barbell in his hand, single leg support you know, toe touch kind of thing. I just, and you're like, Hey, this is Brad Walker. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, university of Washington or it was university of Washington. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and I was just like, it's like, what a, what a life. I was like, I don't even know where in the world I am. And there's this awesome pole vaulter and Dan's here. Just a crazy, crazy time. I, I forgot about that. He, he's, um, and you transitioned from there. It's Olympic transfer. I don't know that I knew that. Was it still, the Olympic Training Center, or was it the Chula Vista Training Center? No, it was still the Olympic Training Center. Oh, like uh, USATF had had a lot of management problems, so the USOC had taken it over for a year. Oh, right. I was hired by a guy named Jay Warwick. He was a portfolio manager for track and field, and I had Ty Saban on the staff, mm -hmm, and, mm -hmm. uh, Al Joyner, mm. and um, uh, who's a Brazilian 800 guy. Um, 
Not he one. Was, not Juan Torino. Uh, no, Cruz. Oh, Juan Cruz. Cruz. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, kind of managing that. And we kind of turned things around, reorganized, financially got solvent and mm. have you. And I think that was 09, if I remember right. So that was a uh, uh, German meet, German world champs. Yeah, I was thinking Tiger Bar was around 08 for me when I went out there because uh, I think I was out there for Sacramento for either USA's or NCAA, something uh, for Sacramento and then came out that way or you know, flew in a different place. Uh, so around 09, I remember the Olympic Training Center. I used to do the uh, juniors uh, high hurdle camps out there for USATF and just always thought what a beautiful area and could thrive and just never got going. So it was kind of good to hear that you kind of brought them into solvency and, and really they had some good years, even through Chula Vista taking over and yeah. uh, Chris Mack and the crew uh, really doing a good job with a lot of, uh, a lot of team USA people, you know, team members coming out of that, those groups. Yep. So at this time, you know, you go through Tiger Bar, which is kind of this, uh, well, not kind of, it's a private coaching, uh, you go to the Olympic Training Center, which is more public coaching, but it's not university bound. Is there any uh, tug at university to pull you back? Or are you, you happy with where, not at all, you're, you're happy with where you're going at that point? <clears throat> yeah, so I'm, I've always kind of been a coach slash therapist and, you know, holistic and all of that. And the NCAA rules are just getting more and more mm -hmm. ridiculous. So really the toolbox that I'm good at, you know, half the tools I couldn't use in the university setting. So, you know, really mm. I, I didn't see it as a viable option. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, what comes after Olympic Training Center? Is this when Altus comes into the picture or World, uh, World, World Pro Center? What happened then? the USA track and field uh, threatened court action against the USOC. So USOC gave it back to USA track and field. <laughs> and I wasn't going to work for those guys for for a lot of reasons sure <laughs> and so longtime friend charles van comeny had just been appointed head coach for the uk uh track program in the four-year lead up to the home olympics and they were in san diego uh for a training camp and charles and i went to dinner he goes what's up and i said well i'm looking for work and he goes i got a job and i was like uh doing what and he goes well we need somebody to run the london training center we'll mm -hmm. make you training center director and you're in charge of all these people and you got 80 athletes and we got three and a half years to figure this out and mm -hmm. you're the guy and i was like well there's no way my wife's moving to england and right i have no desire to live in england or whatnot but i i, I tried a couple other projects and i was coming up dry financially and then he stayed after me, so we'll write up a contract. So he's a close friend. We'd collaborated on athletes for years out of Holland and whatnot. And so I wrote up this incredible contract that I knew no one would buy. And he, they bought it. He called me, said, get on a plane. It's done deal. And I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> so <clears throat> I, I think there's a lesson of be careful what you ask for. <laughs> yeah. So I land in London and um, uh, the, I had a PA and she, you know, in a, a previous visit, she'd set up a driver and all this stuff. So I landed and I got my bags and I'm like, Julie, uh, there's no driver. She goes, oh, we rented you a car. And I was like, what? And I said, I've, I've never drove a right hand car on the left side of the road. She right. goes, oh, you'll, you'll figure it out. <laughs> 
So I go into the car rental place and it takes me an hour to get the car out of the parking spot. Oh, Lord. I'm doing all these three points and the car's stalling. It's a stick shift. And I drove manuals, but not on that side. And <laughs> then I get out and there's a roundabout and they don't have directions. It's just cities. So if you don't know the cities, you don't know what exit out of the roundabout. So I'm calling her, pulling off. It took oh. me like three hours to get to my apartment that she had rented for me. And so that was my introduction to UK <laughs> living. Did it make you long for the uh, highway system of Houston? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, Lordy. So what did you do? Is this when you met? Because uh, I know you worked with Steve Lewis for a while. Is this where Steve Lewis came into the picture? Or is you're working with UK yeah. and London Athletics? So basically my role is to be center director. So coordinate and oversee and be the gatekeeper for sports medicine and sports services and coach development and athlete monitoring and all of that. It was a performance directorship. Mm -hmm. And then <clears throat> Charles and I have a meeting. He goes, we got about six or seven athletes that are injured or troubled children that nobody wants to coach. And I think you could help these people. And I was like, great and so i got people like steve lewis pole vaulter goldie sayers british record holder mm -hmm. in the javelin um rob tobin who was a 400 relay guy and reese williams 400 hurdler uh some sprinters like Dwayne chambers marlon devonish oh yeah christian malcolm and so I, I it's the story of my life i get the lost the homeless and the broken and you know so i ended up you know Part of the day, I'm center director, and part of the day, I'm personal coach to these people. Mm -hmm. Is that part of your spectrum that you like, though, when you talk about the the broken and the, you know... Uh, well, like I said, I'm the underdog guy. So. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. The guys who aren't supposed to do it anymore. <laughs> yeah. So, like, you know, one of the most profile people was Greg Rutherford. So, Olympic right. champion, yeah. world champion, Commonwealth game, Euro, whatever. And so he came to me at age 23, and his injury report was amazing, like 17 hamstring tears on one leg, 15 on the other, three-foot surgeries, like oh. health problems out the zoo, and you know, nobody wanted to coach him, and he was averaging maybe two or three meets a year, so like kind of get well, do a meet, get re-injured, and so, you know, he was probably one of the most lost, broken uh, mm -hmm. athletes that I you know, helped resurrect, you know, with the team around me, it was definitely a team project. Hmm. And all that run through the 12 Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, what happens after that though? Cause th this whole thing was the, for the 12 Olympics, right? Yeah. So mm, tremendous experience and whatnot and totally burnt out. Like I think everybody mm. involved in that project had health problems for about a year or two after it was just, Oh, wow combat fatigue post-traumatic stress disorder because you're fighting all kinds of stuff you know mm -hmm. gender and misogyny and politics and you know it, it was a, a war on a lot of fronts silos and power struggles and whatnot so I was, my plan was financially it was a lucrative gig and I was going to take a year off kind of catch my breath do a little consulting there and uh, John Gadina called me mm -hmm. and he'd started the World's Throw Center there in Phoenix and was looking to expand and wanted to expand kind of into the jumps and the combined mm -hmm. events and asked me if I had an interest and I was like I really need a breather 
And he, again, he said, we'll write up the contract. And I wrote it up and he said, okay. And I was like, oh shit. So <laughs> I started doing the commuter marriage yeah. routine like three weeks in Phoenix, a week back in Austin, yeah. back and forth. And so that the World Athletic Center eventually morphed into Altus is mm -hmm. what you see today. So we envisioned it as a coaching resource center and a home for athletes, you know, for athlete development and you know, network collaboration. And it's amazing that transition. We had John on the podcast uh, not too long ago, last season. Uh, John became a, just a very close friend of mine through World World Throw Center. I don't know how many people even know the history of Altus because Altus has done so well under Altus, but, you know, World Throw Center, World Athletic Center, and, and then uh, transformation at Altus. You might be Maybe you and Andreas, are you two the only people still from the original? From way back, because Stuart well, came in a little it, bit later. It was kind of a, a journey, like John contacted me, and he'd also been talking to Andreas, mm -hmm. and then Stu and Kevin were kind of in there. So yeah, a little bit it was later. kind of in a year period of time where all the satellites came to roost in Phoenix. Yeah, yeah. And now in Atlanta, for crying out loud, that's amazing on its own thing. Stuart is doing an amazing job. That, that whole crew is, is quite amazing. So talk to us about what do you do for Altus? You know, they have become, you guys have become, when I mentioned coaching education, not too long ago, I would have said for formal coaching education, I would have said USATF level ones, level twos, USTF CCCA uh, through the academy with Boo running through that. Uh, and then I would probably would have stopped and said, and then there's some private camps, clinics, you know, those kind of things. But today, now when I mention coaching education, if I ask someone, hey, what do you do for coaching education? I mentioned, you know, do you do USATF, USTF, CCA, Altus? I mean, there's a, a very formalized amount of education and mentorship. Let's make sure we talk about the programs you do there as well uh, that have come through there. Talk, talk to us about building that and what the goals are uh, for those programs. Well, Kevin Tyler, when he was in the UK, was in charge of coach development, and he started the U Coach program, which was an online uh, format for coaches all over the, the home countries and, and what have you. So there was in-person symposiums and workshops, but the bulk of it was online coach development. And I'd worked with Kevin at the Canadian Coach Institute that they had there in Edmonton also. So Kevin had those two realms, you know, that he brought into the WAC at the time, which is now Altus. And so, like we said, we wanted to be a resource center for coaches. So we started the Apprentice Coach Week where mm -hmm. coaches could come out and spend a week and see what best practice looked like. And then we started building this online content. So like I was responsible for the high jump and the pole vault and we got Boo to come in for the horizontals and we got Don Babbitt to come in for the throw mm -hmm. sections. And uh, then uh, Andreas did a hurdle thing and then Stu's kind of gone into the need for speed kind of mm -hmm. stuff for multi-sports and so it's really just and back to the original one of the original mission statements of you know being a resource center for coaches. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it's quite amazing because at least in my relatively short time with track and field, no one's been successful at at creating a home base for coaching education. You know, USATF is, you know, level ones around the country, kind of bringing the curriculum to others. And then, you know, kind of a once a summer hotspot for level twos. Uh, USTFCCA is kind of the same thing. You know, a lot of different areas where they'll have academies. This was very much a, uh, hey, we're going to have the resources here. You come in a week at a time for like the uh, ACPs and things like that. That was pretty radical, maybe still radical today, but, um, but successful. Like today, like I said, you, you talk about coaching education, you have to put Altus in there. How was it from the get-go? How was the reception? Uh, was there ever a moment of like, hey, guys, this just isn't going to work? Uh, or was it always just dogged determination of like, this, this is going to work if we keep pouring into it? Well, I'd, I'd love to tell you we had a plan and that the plan's working, but uh, in this internet age, there's a saturation of online sure. stuff, and there's probably a saturation of, you know, internships and, mm -hmm. and, and what have you. So, you know, we're, we're in the midst of those battles. How do you separate yourself from, from the industry, so to speak? And how do you educate consumers to be more discriminating in their selection and whatnot? So those are a lot of the battles that we're, mm -hmm. we're, we're currently fighting. Uh, fortunately, we were early in. Mm -hmm. And so we've got a, a worldwide network of people that, you know, collaborate with us that we brought in and are now part of the Aldous family. And, you know, they're doing works uh, related and unrelated, but tied to us. And so... It's really a, a word of mouth uh, marketing more so than, mm -hmm. you know, we, we have a big social media footprint mm -hmm. for sure. But, you know, most of our attendees, whether it's in the mentorship courses or the ACPs or whatever, is usually a word of mouth referral. People had a good experience and, you know, can express why they had a good experience. And that encourages people to maybe spend time with us. Well, and talk about that mentorship program, because it's one thing to do coaching education, and you certainly uh, are doing some unique things inside of coaching education. I think about the fireside chats, again, just kind of a, it's a formalized, informal <laughs> way of doing it, which I love. I think that helps uh, maybe kind of bring people's guards down so they're able to ask the questions that sometimes they're afraid to ask. I, I love that aspect of it. Uh, but you're doing this, I, I don't know, I can only think of really one other aspect that I'm aware of, I'm sure there's something in the USATF, but in USTF CCCA, they have an amazing women's mentoring program where they uh, put a uh, female with a another female mentor mentee relationship, a formalized like there's you know there's stages along the year. You guys are doing a mentorship program as well, and I think this is so important in our career. If you think about when you first started, when I think about when I first started to have like a a formalized mentor, like I'd have been a million times better than what I ended up in my career. Talk to us about that mentors program and your role within it. Well, it probably starts with SWOT analysis. You know, so what are your strengths, your weaknesses? What are opportunities and threats to where you currently exist? And then from there, you know, you build out, you know, encourage, you know, I think a good mentor, it's not just one-on-one -on -one and it's back and forth, but they also mm -hmm. build a network around people in a diverse network. So a lot of our work is in, you know, connecting people for areas that they have concern or interest or passion about, and then, you know, alert them to blind spots 
Mm. And so a lot of it's a SWOT, continuous SWOT auditing process. Um, we have different tiers. So we have small cohort meetings. We have, you know, longer presentation discussion meetings and whatnot. So we try to have a, a lot of layers to where people can find some comfort to, to get transparent. Mm. Oh yeah. Wow. Yeah. That that's, uh, let's say that again to where they can find comfort so they can get transparent. Yeah. 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 That's really important. Important. Taking away those, uh, our natural walls, we build up walls for a lot of different reasons. Um, you know, we're scared to talk to people. We're scared of looking like an, a, a fool, all those kind of things. How do we kind of strip those layers bare and realize that, okay, we're in a quote unquote safe place. We can talk and have insecurities here and, and help each other. Yeah, well, we had an interesting debrief with one of our last mentorship groups. So we kind of went around the room and, you know, said, like, what are your three big takeaways or experiences of the mentorship that really hit you? And a common theme came up, and this was primarily driven from the high school coaches we had in the mentorship, you know, and they all to a person said, I was really interested in track and field and in particular my event area. But, you know, now I'm in this mentorship and we got rugby guys from Ireland and AFL football coaches from Australia hmm. and uh, skiing coaches from Canada and whatnot. And I never realized how there were common denominators or common issues or problems or, huh. or whatnot. And so it really brought down the curtain on a lot of the biases that people have and, you know, you know, that's heartwarming when you get that kind of feedback, because that's one of our objectives is to tear down some of these curtains. It's easy for us to think, oh, where we're at, we're the only ones who have these problems. We're the only ones who have these struggles. And it's like uh, athleticism and again, human performance. You know, how do you make a human better at skiing, Australian rules, et cetera? Uh, a lot of commonalities in the issues that are dealt well, with. And you know, a lot of the common denominators is, is power struggles, you know, control, communication, mm. you know, or things like programming. Like, how do you identify essentials and how do you rank essentials? You know, you can't train 8,000 things all at once on a given day. Right. So how do we rank these things and determine what day to do what? You know, programming is universal in sport. Hmm. And, you know, like one of the marathon coaches we had on you know gleaned some incredible insight from in-season training by rugby coaches how they look at things and how they match things together and whatnot and, and she said like that was probably one of the most powerful programming uh sessions she had on the mentorship and who, who would ever thought a marathon coach <laughs> listening to a rugby guy in ireland you know gained insight that's what I was, exactly what I was going to say is like, I never would have guessed that a marathon would have learned anything from rugby and vice versa, by the way. I was like, let me name two completely uh, distant uh, uh, dis disciplines of athletics. And yet there was commonalities to learn from each other. Yeah. Wow. Mm -mm -mm. That's, that's interesting. Uh, so what is your today? What's your percentage of how, how much are you actually coaching an athlete versus coaching coaches today? Well, like I said, I have uh, three direct Paralympic athletes mm. that I coach uh, directly. Um, and they're the only ones outside the kids in the neighborhood that I'm helping, where I, I would call it direct coaching. 
And I do a lot of advisement. So I might have a coach that I've mentored and I'm helping them with an athlete, whether it's return to play or programming or whatnot. So there's probably about 20 to 30 coaches that I help, you know, from that kind of perspective. Mm -hmm. And then there's other coaches where, you know, maybe not as frequent, but, you know, monthly check-ins on their programming or, you know, SWOT analysis on what's going on or life management or power struggles or resources. Hey, I need some help in this area. Mm-hmm. So I would say probably advisement and mentorship is the bulk of the day, but um, then I do a lot of return to place uh, work with pro athletes mm. So that kind of ebbs and flows. So someone coming off of surgery, I'm pretty heavily involved. We're doing Zoom practices and whatnot the first six months. And then, you know, it it filters down. So we have a pretty big listenership here, Dan, uh, including Power Fives, D1s. Someone's going to hear this and be like, uh, Dan, uh, I've got a position for you here at XYZ University. <laughs> What's the, uh, any shot at getting you back into collegiate coaching? Zero. All right, zero. All right, you heard it there. Zero, zero percent. Uh, so everybody put your phones down, quit calling them right now. It's it's over. Uh, he's doing much bigger and greater things, I think, for our sport. Well, I, I, I don't know about that. But like I said, you know, the rules in the university or high school setting of have changed so drastically that um, I, I don't know that I have the skill set or the energy to recreate, you know, a, a coaching style that would fit in the confines of current dictates. Yeah, I hear you. Okay, Dan. So uh, we've got a few more minutes with you here. Uh, I'd like to, with your permission, I've got just kind of a list of topics. And a lot of them are topics that you have recently written blog posts about through Altus. And again, if you're not following Altus, if you're not on the newsletter, highly recommend you to go get this. If you if you want Dan to be a mentor to you and you don't have the resources to go out to Altus and get in the mentorship program, uh, you kind of got a little mini uh, mentorship through these blogs. It's kind of Dan, I don't know if this is the right term here, Dan, but kind of um, regurgitating the knowledge and experience that you've had over these years into written form. And it's really quite phenomenal. So uh, with your permission, I'd like to kind of give a topic and let you just kind of riff on it a little bit, just to try to bring as much value to listeners out there. Does that work okay with you? I'm kind of blindsided. I didn't even bring that up really uh, in our pre-interview. Is that that okay? Well, give it a go. I like to free form. I like I love it. That's see, that's how we work well together, Dan. That's exactly right. Uh, okay, you recently had a nice um, uh, perspective about work-life balance. What would you say? You know, uh, and I was guilty here, hand raised. There was no work-life balance when I was a coach. I'm not sure there's much uh, and better now, but uh, definitely during coaching. Um, and, and I think it showed, you know, I had no serious relationships <laughs> through a coaching. I was always uh, in 10 years, I was at five different institutions. It was always move, 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 etc. cetera. Uh, what do you say to coaches out there um, about work-life balance in general, not even to give an example of what maybe someone's dealing with, just in general, what's your thoughts and feelings now looking back on a coaching career of so many successes, right? A lot of people would say, I want his successes. What is your thoughts on looking back now uh, on work-life balance as a coach? Well, I'm I'm probably not the the guy to talk to about this because I failed massively on that front. Uh, 
I think it's a bit of a myth that you can have work-life balance. I, I think it's kind of a roller coaster, if you will. You have periods where you're really enmeshed in work, and then you have periods where you should be enmeshed in your family and, you know, neighborhood and things like that. So to me, I, I, I didn't get on the roller coaster. I was just on a friggin' freeway or an Audubon, and it was all about coaching and career and whatnot. I think it's about establishing boundaries and, and guardrails and, and, you know, having people in your network, accountability partners that let you know when you're going off track or, you know, you, you're blinded or, you know, you're too driven or you need to step back and catch your breath. So a lot of my counseling or mentorship on that front is like, you know, look at it as a roller coaster and learn how to ride the roller coaster. I, I think we go through phases in, in career development or living life or whatnot. Like when we're in the 20s, we're building our careers. So we're getting certifications and degrees and we're those initial jobs and we're our initial networks and we're just all in and it's all encompassing and we're overwhelmed. We're having to write programs and, you know, politics and power control struggles and all of that. And we're just, you got to be immersed. And then in the 30s, the dust starts to settle a little bit. You're a little more secure in that, but you're expanding and you're growing. You're expanding the network and growing responsibilities and your toolbox and all that. And then in your 40s, you can kind of catch your breath and maybe start to see that you're shortchanging your family a little bit or, you know, the self-care just in there and it comes on the radar. Um, you know, maybe I should look at that. And then you know, in your 50s, you're, you're kind of secure in what you're doing in management. You're just doing tweaks and nudges and whatnot. And then in your 60s, you're kind of the wise old sage. So kind of my perspective, when I was in my 20s, I was kind of like the big brother to the athletes I was coaching. And then mm -hmm. in the 30s, I was kind of like the crazy uncle. And then in my 40s, I was kind of like the young dad. And then my 50s, I was kind of like the old dad. And now I'm in my 60s, I'm kind of like the grandpa. So I think we go through these phases of life and development and whatnot. But my best advice is to realize it's a roller coaster and, mm -hmm. you know, set boundaries and guardrails and whatnot. And, you know, it, it, it just be where you're at. If you're with your family and it's blocked out, be with your family, you know, shut the phone off or whatnot, mm -hmm. or go on a vacation. Or I think that while my kids were growing up, I think we went on three family vacations total. That's bad. I like how you said that it's a roller coaster and learn how to ride the roller coaster, right? There's rules and regulations for it. And so when is the right time to be immersed and when is the right time to be shut off and, uh, and all the times in between that. So yeah, I think there's some really good stuff coming out on self-care, whether it's executive burnout or coaches burnout, like Cody Royal does a great job on you know, coach burnout and, and what have you. And so there's a lot more information out there. Like I've developed a checklist on self-care that I kind of go through with people that I think they're struggling with burnout. Hmm. And a lot of times it's just unawareness of the essentials of burnout and, hmm. and the tactics and strategies that counteract those, those burnout drivers. Hmm. So I think just like we are with mental health, I think we're we're slowly moving in the right direction with what I call coach self-care. Mm. 
you mentioned guidelines and regulations uh, kind of adjacent to those topics that you just ripped on there. And I love that so much value right there. Um, you mentioned in your twenties, you were kind of, you know, big brother, thirties, uh, you know, um, crazy uncle. <laughs> I just love that explanation there. Uh, what I see a lot with coaches and again, no finger point, this is completely guilty. I did this as well. You know, coaching, you actually might be able to help me with this. No one else has been able to give me a third. There are two titles that I can think of in my experience that travel with us, professional titles, no matter where we go. Uh, one is coach, right? Your, your neighbors call you coach and, you know, gosh, I haven't coached in 17 years. I've been at Gill for 16 years and I still get people that say, hey, coach. And, and it's a little bit like flattering. They're like, wow, you still think of me as a coach because that's a very lofty title in my opinion. But it's like, it's also a little bit like I'm not worthy of that title anymore. But coach is one, right? Coach, you know, again, neighbors, you go to buy a loaf of bread and the clerk's like, hey, coach, you know, it kind of travels with you. And then the other title is doctor, right? You call your doctor, hey, Dr. John, or hey, Dr. Smith, that travels with you. No one, no, uh, if you're an accountant, you don't call your neighbor, hey, accountant Jim. Uh, if you're a business owner, you don't call him CEO Sally. Uh, you, you just don't. And what I've seen is because of that coaching role, and we have all these different roles, right? Father, mother, husband, wife, son, brother, sisters. We have all these roles. I've seen a lot of us put the coaching role is number one. So over self-care, relationship care, financial care, health care, et cetera. Uh, and with that comes along this relationship with athletes. And we had, we had a coach last season that said, I want to be that coach that God forbid, if they need it, they can, but they can call me at two 30 in the morning. And I cringe just a little bit. I understand where they're coming from. But I'm also like, really, are you the right person? Should they be? I mean, there's some learned helplessness here. Shouldn't they have their parent or trusted, you know, where do you sit with coach athlete relationship in regards to like all these hats and responsibilities and just overabundance of the coach versus a lot of other resources that we should have as people for help and friendships and things like that? Well, I think that's probably down to your coaching methodology and your outlook and, you know, your philosophy and whatnot. You know, most people will use the cliche, we want to develop an independent athlete, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Athlete. Mm -hmm. well, mm -hmm. My question is, what are you doing to foster that? And so, you know, Having the athlete know who, who to reach out to and when and how and whatnot is part of the educational process. But that said, I think coaches ultimately are the ultimate gatekeeper. You know, we're, we're universalists and we got the network and we've gone down the road and we have all these experiences. So people think like if it falls under the coaching umbrella, this is my go to guide. So I think a lot of times it's just expediency response out of the athlete. Like, you know, you know, I could call our HR department or I could call our sports psychologist or I could talk to the ATC person I really get along with. But my problem is massive and it's unique and I'm special. So I'm going to go to coach. So I think it's, it's probably an educational failure, to be honest, or an accountability failure, you know, mm. like, you know, helicopter parents, parachute parents, you know, like it, it's the same problem. Mm. 
you added, uh, you could add in uh, academic. So instead of going to the counselor, go to the coach first. Uh, um, uh, a class is going to interrupt practice. Did you talk to your guidance counselor <laughs> instead that you came to meet? You know, there's so it's just amazing. First of all, I don't necessarily think all coaches are putting those hats on themselves. We as society and inside of our athletic departments and culturally are putting a lot of those hats on there too. I, I get a little cheesed off when a coach gets nailed in the media because one of the athletes, and this could be pro here, uh, uh, goes out and does something, you know, steals a car. And it's like, well, that coach, and it's like, really, you think the coach was okaying car theft? Come on, <laughs> uh, you know, that, that was that guy or gal making that bad decision, not the leadership well, of the mm -hmm. coach. Well, I think as society, we have a problem putting certain professions on pedestals, you know, mm -hmm. like doctors make mistakes. Doctors don't know everything about everything or whatnot, mm -hmm. but, you know, or, you know, economists or CEOs, you know, we, we put these people on pedestals and we assume that they know everything about everything and they don't. And, um, you know, that's the beauty of being uh, immersed in the scientific process. I mean, basically, the scientific process is designed to prove that we don't know what we're doing or what we th thought was valid isn't valid or whatnot. So I think we've kind of got this thing twisted around a little bit. Okay, let's go back to mentorship here real quick. Uh, we talked about the mentorship program there that you're running with Altus. What do you recommend for coaches on how to get a mentor, whether it's through uh, something much formal like you uh, at Altus or the uh, women's program through USTFCCCA? And an add-on to that is, is there an age and stage where we don't need a mentor? Like at your age and stage, do you have mentors? And kind of with that, or is it a transformation of, do you transfer from having a mentor to being a mentor? I gave you a lot there. Let me yeah. step back. Yeah. I have a lot of mentors and, you know, as I've aged, I've diversified the layers and the types. So I have mentors in radiology oh. and surgery and, you know, gait analysis. I have mentors in management. I have mentors in mental health issues, women in sport issues, you know, the so my, my encouragement is is to reach out to diverse populations and diverse people. You know, it's not, not always sports specific or or what have you. Get, get multiple mentors, you know, spiritual mentors, mental health mentors, relationship mentors. In this internet age, it's it's not that hard to to see the umbrellas that, that exist out there. And you know, you might get 10 no's but all, all it takes is one yes and mm. i think it's how you present yourself and what you're chasing and what you're looking for you know i get a lot of requests and i'm like you know what's the issue where do you really need help and then i'm like you know time-wise i'm a little bit jammed but these two people are excellent they're good friends they're colleagues that they have space maybe explore mm -hmm. them and if this isn't working after a while, get back to me. So, you know, back to our delegation mm. uh, topic. So for me, the, the key, one of the key components of mentorship is building these layers and diversities of mentorships or influencers, you know, in your life. That, that's 
pretty eye-opening because I'm pretty myopic. When I think of mentors inside the coaching world, I think of other coaches only. I, I never thought about mental health professionals and uh, people who have experience in women and gender issues and concerns. I, I never even thought about those as potential mentors for our track and field coaches as well. Well, like one of the things that happened in the UK was social media explosion. So Twitter became huge and Instagram became huge and Facebook and YouTube videos. I mean, it just exploded. So we went from zero to like, you know, we had people, you know, athletes on social media, eight, nine hours a day. They were just frigging fried. So we had to bring in experts on how to manage social media and, you know, how to set boundaries and guardrails and time allotments and use and the perils of posting and how to be transparent, but not too transparent and all that. So I had no idea about social media. Like I, I, I didn't use a cell phone until the late nineties. So I wasn't the guy to ask. That's funny. You said that because you are, Pretty prolific on Twitter. I'm a Twitter guy, so I'm always on Twitter and I see you on there. I don't know if you use other social medias, but you seem to be uh, a user of Twitter and, and a user in maybe in different aspects. I don't necessarily see you posting a lot, but you uh, it seems like you use maybe that for like a news resource and, and culture resource, if you will. Yeah. Uh, well, <clears throat> part of our marketing is to have a social media footprint at Altus. So mm. I was kind of forced into it. And then once you get into it, it's like crack cocaine, you know, you can't <laughs> stop. So, But, I, you know, I find a lot of interesting, you know, research papers presented or, or perspectives and whatnot. And, you know, I'm very diverse, you know, that I follow certain immunologists and, right. and certain mental health. Uh, practitioners and you know various coaches and coaching realms so uh, again I try to stay pretty diverse and um, you know try to look at the other side of things too yeah yeah I love it man I, I just you know go back to 05 when we met there in uh, Vanderbilt I never would have first of all we wouldn't, wouldn't have guessed anything of Twitter because it didn't exist but uh, would not have guessed uh, yeah yeah Dan Paff's gonna be uh, on Twitter all the time <laughs> <laughs> You wouldn't have either. You'd be like, no, Twitter, what are you talking about? <laughs> I, I'm trying to reduce my addiction, mm. but uh, it's not easy. I, I found, I watched that um, documentary on Netflix, uh, The Social Network, I think it was. Um, and they talked about, you know, the, what the social media networks do to get you on there. And I... Uh, took all of my social medias, including my email. I consider that kind of a social media. It's just a different form of text messaging, which I think is social media. Uh, I think of podcasting as social media. So I, I kind of lumped those all into uh, one huge bucket. But I took all of them except for Twitter and turned off all notifications. I just don't have them pop up. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll check Facebook maybe once a day or twice a day, uh, but I'm not going to get that, especially on weekends. I'm not going to get that notification. Twitter, because I use that as almost like a text message. You know, that's why I get. DM request and conversations. That's what I like about Twitter is it's more conversational than say an Instagram. Uh, so I do keep that uh, notification on, but I have found myself, I, I don't know if I can quantify it and say that I'm happier or less stressed, but I, and I grab my phone a lot, but I don't grab it as much as I used to when every Instagram like would pop up, every Facebook comment would pop up. Uh, it seems to be, it's worked for me at least to kind of shut those down except for one of them. 
Well, it circles back to our discussion, guardrails and boundaries mm -hmm. and whatnot. Mm -hmm. You know, like when yeah. I block my calendar, like it, the first thing I put in is my exercise routine. That's mandated. It's blocked. There's no excuse. Not working around it. Some emergency may come in, mm -hmm. but I just slide it down. It doesn't disappear. And then I have reading blocked out. And then I have half hour yeah. emails in the morning, half hour in the I have social media for an hour here and an hour here. Yeah. So I, I just blocked that out and I'm pretty good about sticking to the plan. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's pretty uh, uh, disciplined. Well, I, I grew up in a German household, so <laughs> no choice. Yeah. Right. And on the farm, there's no choice yeah. of when things got to get planted and when they got to be picked up. Yeah. All right. A few more questions here, Dan. I, I love you, man. Thank you so much for this. There's so much value here. I'm just uh, in awe here. Um, recently you had uh, a blog post and I'm, I think I'm paraphrasing here a little bit. So you correct me and, and, and give us the, uh, the, the information here. I believe you hypothesized on is coaching worth the grind. And I can't remember if those were your exact words. Do you, do you remember that post? And no, what, I don't, uh, I, I let's see, it's not, I didn't do my research. Well, very well. You know, any profession profession that you're in, you know, like we said, it's a roller coaster. And so I always did a SWOT analysis at the end of the year. I'd write a list of the positives and a list of the negatives. And when the negatives really outpaced the positives, it was time to move on or change mm -hmm. operating procedures. So I kind of don't like the word grind. A lot of times social media, I get overruled on what the title is or the concept <laughs> because they sure. got to get uh, clicks or what have you. Right, right, right. <laughs> but <clears throat> to, to me, when people use the term grind, you know, they're probably early or mid-stage burnout. Mm. So to me, when I hear grind, it's kind of a red flag. And, and, and in essence, it tells me you're struggling with management. I, I heard a, we're, we're bringing in something to our workplace here at Gill. Uh, it's from a author. Have you heard the author, Patrick Lencioni, yeah. uh, five dysfunctions of a team, ideal team player. He's got a new one called the six types of working genius. And he had this analogy about burnout and it kind of, it really was a different way of, you know, thinking and looking at it for me, at least when we hear burnout, we think about here, at least in the professionals uh, side of, of life, um, we think about burnouts like, oh, well, then give them extra days off, let them get away from the office, et cetera. And he used the analogy of a car running out of gas. That's kind of a burnout-ish type of analogy, right? And he said, when a car is running out of gas, uh, you don't park it on the side of the road and that's how it fuels back up, you give it more fuel, you give it the thing that it needs. And so some people are coming close or experiencing burnout and you give them a few days off. Well, that's the exact opposite. They don't want to be sitting around not doing, they, they need to be doing more of what they love. And that's kind of where his working genius uh, assessment comes in of like, here are things that are your God given wired to, to love and it gives you energy. And here's the things that sap you away from energy. Uh, it's not, you can't burn out when you're doing things you love that, that are giving you energy, uh, but you can, when you're doing the other things, so I just think about that burnout of like, you know, with coaching, it's hard because it's hard for us to take days off, but then, so is it a shifting of, um, of priorities or shifting of responsibilities, uh, amongst the coaching staff and, and all the, again, the many, many hats you wear is there a way to take off some hats and give it to someone who loves that aspect. And you go over here and do the things that they don't like, uh, to do, and that can maybe stave off a burnout. Yeah, and that's why I keep saying it's a management puzzle mm. and problem. You know, it's a tug of war between, you know, 
polarities, if you will. And, and where should it, uh, our laundry list of self-care, like social interaction, you know, do you have time for a coffee with a friend or, you know, can you do a, a weekend group thing with your neighbors or whatnot? How do you recharge? How do you refuel? And how do you reduce psychic vampires and energy drains and stuff like that? But that's all a management puzzle, eh? Yeah, I don't think we're very good at that. <laughs> uh, and I don't know if it's something that, that that people who are inclined to be coaches aren't very good at, or if it's part of the profession that makes us not very good at it, but it's a bad combination. Well, I think there's a you know a helper gene in us as coaches. Certainly. We we want to serve and help and, and whatnot. And you know, if you look at the helping professions like nurses and psych psychologists and psychiatrists and police and, and fire, the burnout rates are off the chart and it, you know it's probably driven by this huge desire this underlying driver of helping people but mm. we don't know how to help ourselves mm. yes yeah very true very true uh, okay dan we alluded to it earlier uh you know some of the top coaches and you know you can't really say that until they get near the end of their career because of their whole body of work but uh brooks johnson uh, Boo Schneider, yourself, you are what uh, we would call a generalist. You're, you're a track and field coach. You're not a hurdles coach. You're not a distance coach. You're not a sprints coach, uh, a throws coach. Uh, Brooks kind of um, described it as every event is kind of the same. You're just moving the center of, of mass, uh, center of gravity. And some you do it doing circles, some you do it down a runway, some you do it uh, around the track, et cetera. Some you do it for a marathon. Uh, it's just it's just, just a biomechanics issue of how you're doing it and the most efficiently. Uh, and again, guilty here, hand raised. I wanted to be, when I got into coaching, because I fell in love with the hurdles, I wanted, like, I took a little offense when someone was like, oh, you're, you're a sprints coach. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I'm a hurdles coach. I might coach the sprints or I might coach the jumps. In fact, when I went to go do my first level two, I wanted to do sprints and hurdles because I was a hurdles coach. That's what I wanted to go do. And Mike Korn calls me up and says, hey, the class is sold out, but I do have a, a, a spot in the jumps. And I was like, ah, man, I coached that, but man, that's my secondary. I'd really want to do sprints and hurdles. And Mike tells me, he goes, hey, you'll trust me, you'll get a lot out of it. It was taught by Bushek Snyder, of course. So, uh, you know, I got, I'm so thankful that I did, you know, that I did that. Uh, but what, what is your advice to coaches, whether they're getting into it today, maybe they're 10 years, even 20 years and they're, you know, they're the sprints guru or they're the throws guru. What's your advice about being a track and field generalist? I love that, that, that term you put in there versus the hyper focus go, 20,000 leagues under the sea on one specific area of track and field. Well, I don't, I, I don't think it's a simple linear equation. You know, I think there's periods where we need to be specialists, like, you know, that roller coaster that we talked about. I mean, <clears throat> there were years where I had a great throws group. And I mean, I biased a lot of my reading, my research, my energies, my passion into the throws. It didn't mean I turned my back on the other events. It's just, you know, I put more time and energy into that group. So it's a little bit of a roller coaster. You know, like I said, I've had years where I was known as a jumps coach. I've had years where, oh, he's a sprints coach. Oh, he's, you know, a throws coach. No, he's a hammer coach. No, he's a javelin coach. Like in the UK, when I started coaching Goldie Sayers, 
the throws community was up in arms like what what's this friggin' sprints guy doing coaching the javelin so i think it's kind of like work-life balance you know i think there's this juggling act between specialization and generalization and i i think it's dangerous to be at either pole hmm. so you, you expound on that just a little bit you're saying you think it's if the, if the two poles are i am only going to focus on learning and and uh becoming the best sprints coach in the world versus i am going to learn every single event out there you're saying uh the polarities being on the complete far side is wrong again that spectrum we keep bringing that in there you think more inside of the spectrum well time of year stage of development and athletes you have the environment you're working in and whatnot i think we just need to realize we're, we're going to slide on that spectral scale kind of like a volume knob mm. and there's certain periods of our career and time with unique athlete groups where we may be more specialist than others but you know the danger of being a generalist is you really don't get deep into the layers Right. Of, of an event so you know i'm biased to being a generalist sure. <laughs> yeah no also pretty curious so you know like our example with tori johnson like hey for six months i was friggin' driven to figure out the hammer so i was super event specialist but i was also the field events coach the head women's coach you know i had to coach in a lot of other events so I had to kind of adjust that volume knob day to day or week to week or cycle to cycle. And so like, you know, one cycle, Tori's like, I need to spend a lot of time in the weight room, not so much time on the cycle. So then I could go back to being more of a jumps coach or whatnot. So this is what I mean about environmental constructs really kind of dictate how we slide that volume bar. I love it. All right, Dan, my last question for you, sir. Um, you, I have done a hundred, almost 190 interviews now through the Gill Connections podcast. And I've never asked this one question. Great. What, <laughs> what is something that I didn't ask you that I should have? Whoa, that's a good one. I have to think about that. I really don't have an answer. I'll probably ponder that one and get back to you. We may do, because we're, we're recording this earlier than when you're listening to it now, dear listener. So uh, I just wanted to make sure, you know, Dan's fountain of knowledge, and that is a big old fountain here. Um, you know, we don't get these opportunities very much. And I'm so glad that we had this opportunity today, Dan. And so I wanted to make sure, again, because your knowledge level is, uh, you know, unbelievable, for a, 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 for a part of the of, of the area that I'm so passionate about, and that's coaches. And so I just know that, you know, there's been, uh, you've done a thousand interviews, you have uh, talked to a thousand people, you've asked questions. Uh, think about that. And if, if there's something that you're like, you know what, Mike, you know, it's something that coaches need to hear uh, X, Y, and Z, get back to me. We might jump on and you know, get five, 10 more minutes to add to the end of this. So mm -hmm. it's it, it, a light bulb went off. All right, that's good. I knew it. I knew it. Uh, state of sport okay what about in, it in society today yeah tell me more so early specialization you know the club teams and getting away from schools the university chaos with the super 50 schools and the nil and people transferring and transfer portal and um, you know the reduction of 
competitive opportunities in track and field worldwide because of financial stressors and you know world politics and boycotts and whatnot it's truly a, an earthquake moment in sport for me you know i i've never seen so many confluences interrupting or affecting sport and the execution of sport you know in my 68 years of living where, where does it all go i have no idea we need leaders like you and as important leaders like you have built in our building uh, to set us on the right path. Well, and some of it is, you know, usually when there's existential crises, there, there's wise sages or mentors or, you know, pillars of experience that can kind of guide the boat. Um, but we're guys my age, we're at a tremendous disadvantage because we didn't grow up in the informational age and in, in the social media influence and the, the politics that are moving and, and how money is morphing sport. Mm. Like we don't have the background in that. And so that's why we need to network and bring in multi-generational analyses and expertise for this puzzle. So like this NIL thing, you know, is, is bizarre and, you know, transfer portal, you know, I had one coach had 14 athletes in the transfer portal and then seven realized they weren't getting a look and they begged to come back and they'd already filled scholarships. And they, I mean, it's, I've never seen this kind of chaos. I think that's the right word, chaos. And then the high school coaches, you know, and I'm friends with a lot of high school coaches in the area and. You know, my neighbor came over, 14-year-old daughter, a uh, volleyball rock star, and asked me, should we dump the school program and just have her stay in this really elite club? And, wow. you know, I said, well, what's the end goal? And it's scholarships and, and all of that. And so, you know, there, even at this level, at the neighborhood level, we're wrestling with some major philosophical issues. And to your point about guys in your age and stage, and I would put myself in this age and stage with you, when we grew up, especially where you grew up in your ear and where I grew up in small town, Alabama, uh, what do you mean not play for your high school team? That's the only option you have is to play with your, if you're not playing in the streets with your friends, you're playing for the high school or the middle school team. There's no clubs, there's no elite travels. It boggles me uh, when I hear that type of situation. It's like, what do you mean you don't play for your high school team? Like, so I've, I've got a case study of one. I'm helping this major league baseball pitching prospect, uh, local neighbor friend, 17 years old, 6'5", 200 pounds, throwing over 100 miles an hour, can throw over 90 with four different pitches. He's a rock star. Oh, well, he's got a pitching coach, a batting coach, a strength and conditioning coach. He's got a soft tissue therapist. He's got a chiropractor. He's got preschool practice he's got post-school practice all this and you know they came to me and said like we're stressed out and i was like yeah sure yeah at 17 this guy's yeah. got a bigger team around him than i've got guys in the major league baseball and they're having to make decisions on how to use what when and how right like, Wow. Like, you know, like when I came home with a complaint about my coach, my dad said, well, you got two choices. <laughs> do what he says or quit. That's exactly right. Yeah. 
<laughs> it was pretty simple. Back pretty then. simple. Not not a lot of stress back then on that regard. <laughs> what will my physio think? Yeah, I'd have no physio. What are you talking about? <laughs> oh man, Dan, we're at time, man. Um, thank you so much. You know, again, one of my really um it's a responsibility of mine. You know, I represent thousands of voices right now that don't get a chance to talk to you, to email you, um, but owe so much to you and are just so thankful for uh, some things that they know directly. So it's something as direct as, you know, my experience with you is, you know, coming up and finding me and shaking my hand and saying, congratulations to indirectly. They don't even realize, uh, again, I didn't realize the influence you had over my dear mentor, friend, uh, I mean, just everything, my pillar, everything that you mentioned, uh, Boo Shexnaders. I mean, if, if, if there's people not like you, there's not a Boo in the form that he is today. If there's not people like Coach Telez, there's not a Dan in the form of today. So, um, you know, it's a real humbleness here that I get to represent thousands of people and tell you, thank you, you know, from direct help with actual, the X and O and Y of coaching to the how do I be a coach? How do I be a person who chooses to be a track coach uh, with work-life balance and just uh, life in general, man? I'm just so thankful and just want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart and the bottom of many, many people uh, that right now are, are they're shaking their heads and, uh, and telling you uh, through me uh, how much you mean to them. So thank you so much for what you have done, what you are doing, and what's amazing is you're still doing, my friend. It's it's quite a, a journey that isn't over. We're, we're not at the end, of the, at the end of the book here, my man. You are still writing your journey. And I'm just so proud of you and so happy for you and so thankful for you. Well, thanks for having me. And it is a little bit of a cliche, but it truly does take a village. So let's build a great village. Absolutely. Amen. I love it. That's the, that's the mic drop right there. That's the end of it. Dan, thank you so much, man. Have a great rest of your day. I appreciate you more than you'll ever know, friend. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir.